You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Do you know what Ed Gein said about women? What did Ed say? He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And what the other part of him think? <laughs> what her head would look like on a stick. <laughs> I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Really impressive. <laughs> Another martini, Paul. I know my uh, behavior can be erratic sometimes. The stupid thing, Dave! What are you so fucking zany about? I'm just a happy camper, rocking and rolling. If you don't shut your fucking mouth, I will kill you. No, I'm in touch with you, man. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Miss Paula Guthett. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Also with us this week is Mr. David Rogers. Hi, Mike. Nice to be joining you. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are discussing the 2000 film American Psycho, directed by Mary Heron. The film is based on the 1991 book by Brett Easton Ellis and stars Christian Bale as Patrick Bateman, a serial killer who hides behind a mask of normalcy in the yuppie world of the late 80s Manhattan. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers when it comes to this film and the book and maybe even the musical. So if you haven't seen the movie and don't want it ruined, well... I'd suggest you turn off the podcast. That seems like the smartest thing to do. Now, Paula, when was the first time you saw American Psycho, and what did you think? I saw it a few years ago on cable. I had heard about it. I didn't think it was for me. I definitely knew the book probably wasn't for me, but it was on. I started watching it. It sucked me in, and I couldn't believe, honestly, my first impression was what a cast. All of these people were in it that are famous now, like Jared Leto had just won an Oscar, so I guess we'll date that around the time of Dallas Buyers Club. Justin Theroux, Josh Lucas, Chloe Sevigny, Samantha Mathis. I was like, wait a minute. Samantha Mathis and Kristen Bale were together in Little Women. Totally different movie. So I was just really fascinated by all these people that were sort of 90s people that were like 90s indie people that are now have a certain measure of fame. And the other thing was, is I was like, well, no wonder he got the Batman role because there's a lot of similarities. And then I was like, wow, this is really gross. Then I was like, wow, this is really funny. And I just was like, okay, so I totally had the wrong impression of it. And now after I look at it, at it again, there's obviously more going on there than I originally thought. How about you, David? I actually saw this when it first hit video in late two or summer of 2000, I think. Appropriately, I watched it on VHS. It was one of those movies, um, you know, when the TV spots were coming out, uh, I remember it was the movie that one particular shot sold me on the movie, and that was the scene where he uh, takes off the uh, the facial mask. Well, of course, in the TV spots, you didn't know what that was because I hadn't seen the movie yet. 
but I just remember that really capturing my imagination. And of course, when I watched it on video, I just instantly fell in love with it. Now, keep in mind, when I first saw it, I was 17 years old, I believe. So I probably took more of the the violent aspects from it. But of course, as you know, I've watched it in subsequent years. You know, I see a lot of the social satire and what it's saying about the 80s, especially the Greek, the Wall Street 80s. Much like Paula, I mean, even at the time, uh, you know, I loved the cast and at least the ones that people I recognized. You know, at the time, I think this was in Reese Witherspoon's sweet spot, you know, when she was making edgier stuff, let's say, like Election or Freeway. Even then, I thought the cast was pretty great and just been in love with this movie ever since. I saw this one at the theater at Universal Theme Park down in Orlando, Florida. Uh, my <laughs> wife and I... We're on vacation with our family, and we had some time to kill, so we said, let's go in. No pun intended. <laughs> let's go in and check out this American Psycho movie. I had never read the book. The book was rather notorious, and it just seemed like, when I heard about it, I was usually just hearing one side of it, and that was more of the feminist perspective. This book came out in 1991. I was at college. It was at University of Michigan. Political correctness was kind of in its uh, nascent heyday. So it was really this hot button kind of thing. Oh, my God, this guy is a terrible person. This book is just about this guy who's just murdering women. Cut to 2000. And yeah, to your point, David, I can see the social satire at this point. And then the more time that passes the more this feels relevant. And really what kind of kicked this uh, episode off was picking up one of the unmade versions of the script and the opening scene takes place on Donald Trump's yacht. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, let's talk about this because we basically have an American Psycho in the Oval Office. So let's talk about American Psycho, the movie. Because I keep talking about how the 80s are back, and so much of what is in this book and in the film just feels so much more relevant today than they did even in 2000. I think neither of them have any normal feelings. And, and throughout, <laughs> I've, re I've not read the book, but I've read about the book, and I've read quite a few passages from the book. Just his whole, how he idolizes Donald Trump. He gets like weird confidence from seeing like faded posters of Donald Trump. He goes into his brother and tells him, I'm going to a party at Donald Trump's. It's going to be great. Like big party. He has like Trump's like speech patterns. It's, I mean, who would have thought most of that doesn't make it into the movie. I think when they're in the restaurant that he takes Paul Allen to, he looks over and goes, Oh, Hey, is that Ivana Trump? And he, that was like two wives ago. Definitely, like, the, the whole thing of, like, empty. Like, I, I remember reading that Christian Bale said that he's Tom Cruise. He saw Tom Cruise on a talk show, and he saw this, like, intense friendliness with dead eyes, and that was, like, another emblem of the 80s, and that's, that's part of what he used for the characterization. Well, it's funny because Tom Cruise is actually in the book. He lives in the same apartment building that Patrick Bateman lives in. He lives up in the penthouse. And at one point, Bateman runs into him into in an elevator. And he starts talking about what a big fan he is, but he can't even remember the name of the movie Cocktail. He starts calling it Bartender. <laughs> <laughs> and Cruz isn't the kind of guy to just like let that pass. I'm talking about the novelization 
Cruise, the Brett Easton Ellis version of Cruise, he has to correct Bateman and tell him, no, the, na- the name of the movie was Cocktail. So just to get that straight. Yeah, I can definitely see where there is some Tom Cruise uh, affectation to this. And God, the book, I mean, the book has this a lot more than the movie, just because I don't think that you could fit it into the movie. This whole idea of the brands i mean they talk a lot about brands in the movie but just the list of brands you know i wore this type of shirt with this type of collar with this type of jacket with this type of vest with these pants with these shoes with these socks as i was walking down the street listening to my sony walkman and just over and over and over again with all of these brands now, I will tell you that I recently listened to the book on audio. I, I never actually sat down and read it. I listened to it, and it was driving me nuts because the guy who was reading it kept saying Hermes every time it was Hermes. <laughs> That's the only that, one he fucked next up Next to die, like Patrick Bateman is going to come and take care of that guy. That error is unforgivable. Well, we must have listened to the same version because it drove me up a wall every time he said Les Miserables. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And I and I asked my wife about that because she's more of the authority on musicals. And I was like, this guy keeps saying Les Miserables. And she's like, well, some people actually say it that way. I'm like, well, I kind of just took the approach. Well, they're stupid. (laughs) I I can't imagine anybody pronouncing it like that. When the point of the novel is and the movie, but they couldn't get the brands into the movie. But when the point is the brands. They should have maybe been a little more careful. Because that's the whole point is this catalog of Rolex. And like you said, and that was all about the 80s. I mean, even I was just a kid, but you had to have the right jeans and the right shoes. And, you know, that was all. That's all the 80s. It's, that's the deal. And I'm glad he's, he still has the Les Mis poster in his room. In his room, yeah. And is this his bathroom? I think you might be right. This beautiful framed Les Mis poster and throughout the book, Les Mis is everywhere. It's on bus ads. It's every place. And it's so ironic because I remember when Les Mis was out in the eighties and just, that was one of those, this, this, we're not talking Hamilton level of ticket prices, but we are talking crazy amounts of money to get tickets to see Les Mis. And it was just so ironic because it is this, you know, musical about the haves and the have nots where only the haves could go see it and the have nots would have to wait until the fucking movie version of it to see it. It's maybe there's another Dorja. Everybody's trying to get in. I can get reservations at Dorja. Oh my God. So many references to that. This movie is amazing that it starts and ends with the restaurant conversations. And that's the biggest, most important thing to these guys is where are they going to eat? And it's not just about the food, even though the food is absolutely fucking crazy too. And I love that we kind of focus on that in the opening credits, but it's about being seen and seeing people. And if you get the, the seat, if you get the reservation at Dorsey on Friday night, there you go. You're the man, but everybody else is trying that they're vying for, it, and they're all just throwing out these crazy, <laughs> the, 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 the food in the book is amazing as well. Just to hear some of the weird concoctions that they come up with. And they always describe the portions as being super tiny. Right on a giant yeah. plate with the sauce. And I listened to the commentary and Mayor Heron said they started out with 
things that would be on an actual menu being in the movie normal for that type of restaurant not like normal like a normal person but normal for that type of restaurant and then as it went on it got more and more crazy and and expensive and ridiculous the more exotic the food the higher the status and all that and so by the end it just got you know crazy well in the book it goes even a little bit crazier but there's a, a there's a part in the book where lewis was talking about a trip to arizona he had and taking out uh you know, whoever he was uh, working with to dinner and uh, telling I, I can't remember exactly what it was he ordered. But let's say he ordered roast beef and Patrick was like, well, was it served with apricot marmalade? Was it, you know, like whatever. He's so out of touch with just food that it has to be everything has to be extravagant. He can't comprehend just a simple dish. He needs that Wiley Dufresne molecular gastronomy kind of stuff Did it have foam with it. Sorry, that took me back to being a barista for like a month and people being very particular about their orders. You know, I want three fourths cup foam and just a little bit of coffee. (laughs) So, yeah, it's very smart the way that they start this off with the food slash violence imagery where we think that we're seeing blood, but we're actually seeing like a a raspberry uh, reduction being put onto a plate takes us into this restaurant and then we get this whole conversation. They're they're in a restaurant, but they're already deciding where are we going to go. You know, who's getting reservations for this, that, or the other thing? They're already at a at a great restaurant, right? There's all these other. They're like, oh, this is a girl's place, so they got to go somewhere else. It's always the next place. They can't stay and enjoy anything anywhere where they are. It's always on to the next one. And the patter between these guys just. The anti-Semitism that comes out, though, Patrick Bateman, he's got a lot of faults, but he claims to be not anti-Semitic, which is just amazing. And uh, the homophobia that comes out, I mean, you could just dismiss it as locker room talk. I hear that that happens every now and again, that really vile things get dismissed as locker room talk. But in this case, they're just going at it. And it's again, it's just all 100 percent vapid. And they have this thing that runs throughout the uh, book as well. And there's a, a little mention of it uh, later on in the film, in right before the uh, Willem Dafoe scene, where they're constantly talking about what clothes go with what and this whole fashion thing. And they just basically they come to Bateman for all of this advice as far as, you know, what about tasseled loafers? Can I wear brown socks with this? What about this type of collar? What what not goes bell, best on my tie for this type of collar? And that's the biggest thing that they seem concerned about. And even in that opening scene with these guys talking, they're confusing people for one another. You know, oh, there's Paul Allen over there. No, no, that's not Paul Allen. That's Paul Allen over there. And it's just this whole thing of them looking all alike and being so interchangeable. There's one scene later on in the movie where there are three blonde women, three blondes sitting there in a row, all with black dresses. They look almost identical. And when I think about the rest of the women characters in the movie, I'm just like, yeah, other than Chloe Svenny and so many of the women, I mean, I know what Samantha, Samantha Mathis looks like. I know what Reese Witherspoon looks like, but they're pretty blondes. And it's just like all of these women are basically adhering to their standard of beauty while the men are trying to adhere to their standard of beauty. And everyone is absolutely interchangeable. They're all just like consumers. 
Well, they're all supposed to look like GQ models. And they do. Like, I don't know, for years and years, um, Ralph Lauren used a model that looked a lot like Christian Bale. You know, that's how Ted Bundy used to get all the girls, is he was cute and came on like the guy next door. I think there's an element of that, too, because he is so handsome. It seems okay to go with him. You're not, he doesn't look like a serial killer. Let's put it that way. Well, Tad, to your point, I mean, you're, you're right. He does use that to, uh, to his advantage, especially the, um, the second pickup scene where he's getting Christy. I mean, you just see he's really laying on the charm. He's leaning on his good looks to lure her back in since she doesn't want to go back in, uh, get back in the car with him. The second mm-hmm. time after he was, we never know, and it doesn't tell you in the book either. You just know that a coat hanger is involved, and that's Perfect. really it. I love that uh, you mentioned the scene with him peeling off the face mask, and that comes in fairly early in the film, which I think is a, a very brilliant thing to do because it really sets up who Bateman is. This whole idea of that morning routine, all the things that he does, again, it plays into this whole ideal that he is working for. And in that voiceover from Bale, when he says that there's actually no Patrick Bateman, he's just an idea and that he's not actually there at all as he's peeling that face mask off. That to me is probably takes the whole movie and condenses it down to basically five minutes, if not less of screen time. And that little bit of dialogue, his voiceover just explains so much of the film and is so perfect to put right at that right moment because that everything that we see after it just exemplifies what he said in those few words. And I would assume that all of the products that he uses were brands. I know that she had said in the commentary that they, they couldn't get the brands to buy in um, because of the nature of the subject matter. You know, he's just a like a walking brand. Like, Yeah, he reminds me of ed norton looking through that ikea catalog in fight club that is his pornography and that would be patrick bateman's pornography would be to look through you know whatever the idealistic catalog would be for him to pick out you know oh, i want the ralph Lauren tie with the whoever i, I keep thinking of female designers uh, gucci loafers with this with that you know just all of these 300 dollars cashmere socks right. i mean that's how he ends up getting paul allen into his apartment because he's a you know, he's um, going through with things he can we they can do, hang out. And then he finally says something to the effect of, well, I've got a preview of the new Barney's catalog, which which ends up sealing the deal of all the things, you know, fine cigars, <laughs> good wine and fantastic sound system to listen to. Barney's catalog is what ki- what gets them into the apartment. The restrictions they had with uh, not being able to use some of the brands kind of was to their benefit because what works well in the book, you know, Mike, like you've mentioned, you know, he'll go on for like three paragraphs about what he's wearing. That can become quite daunting if you're watching a movie. And I know in one of the commentaries, they did mention that they weren't a fan of voiceover, but it had to be used from time to time. And I think this this movie is a perfect example of how to use it the correct way. Uh, Because so much of it is internal. There's no other way to explain that but voiceover. So, you know, it can be a crutch sometimes. But in this case, I think they found the right balance. Years and years ago, I was um, this was a a thing that I had to do for uh, probably three jobs ago. They would fly employees out to Las Vegas. And we were given this task to do over a period of three days. And we had to come up with a presentation. They would give us a 
a fake brand, a fake product, and an audience that fit in with uh, – they would give us a demographic and then a sin. So it was called the seven sins and sin city task that we had to do. And I know it sounds so corporate rah-rah kind of bullshit stuff, but it was actually very, very interesting because first off, you got to learn a lot about some coworkers that you never actually dealt with. I dealt with a person from the New York office, one from the San Francisco office, one from the Toronto office, people I never would have worked with before. And our product was a, a solar electric hybrid car. And our target audience was 26 to 32 year old men and our sin was vanity and one of the things that we did was go through the wind casino and go to all of these different shops including the rolex shop and start at we would say we're here and we're doing this experiment and we're you know doing this research and we would start asking people so we went to actually it was we went to the uh, rolex shop we went to the ferrari dealership that they have at the caesars and just asking the salespeople to describe the thrill that people would get with these things and just to hear them talk about the exclusivity of their products and the price and how the price and the exclusivity were the things that sold people more than the actual quality of the products <laughs> was just amazing to hear. And I just kept thinking of that as I was watching this, especially because of the whole thing where they couldn't say, don't touch the Rolex, because it's just like, man, those Rolex and just the prices. I mean, the guy, of course, the salesman, being a good salesperson, is trying to sell us on a Rolex while we're there. And we're just like, you got to be fucking kidding me. The cheapest <laughs> one that you have is, what, $300? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think so. Once a brand loses its cachet, if nobody wants it, then it's not exclusive. Right. So it's so aspir like it's you know aspirational versus. Um, well, I don't know. Well, that, the only reason why they all want Gucci loafers is they all want Gucci loafers. If it's something else next week, then no one's going to want Gucci loafers. They're going to want something else. That exclusivity. I mean, that's probably why. Uh, not probably. That is why Dorsey is such a a mecca. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and then in six weeks, it'll be something else. When he's looking to um, lure Paul Allen away and murder him over his business card, which we can get into that later, I'm sure, he takes him to a restaurant where he knows there isn't going to be anybody. And Paul Allen is, like, really upset. He's, like, he's upset that there's no one there. Yeah, he's just yeah. disgusted that that Damon would take him to a restaurant where there's no one here. But it's perfect because... Mm -hmm. Since they're interchangeable, nobody will notice that right. he wasn't where he was supposed to be, and he knows he won't see anyone that he knows. And Bateman never corrects anybody. When they mistake him for somebody, he just goes with it every single time. Hey, Habistram, or hey, this guy, hey, that guy. He just plays along with it every single time. He never will correct anybody. And I don't think that that's necessarily him being polite. It's probably a little bit of a sick thrill for him to be mistaken for somebody else or to live someone else's life for a few seconds. But yeah, he never has a problem with that. And then yes, he turns it around and uses it for his advantage and he will actually start to pretend to be other people. Sometimes to cover his crimes, sometimes not mostly to cover his crimes. I mean, the, after he murders Paul Allen, he 
constantly says, you know, no, I'm Paul Allen. Tell them you're at Paul Allen's house. He'll take people to Paul Allen's apartment, pretend that it's his apartment, pretend that he's Paul Allen. And he just is so envious. He's envious of that business card and he's envious of that account. And it's amazing that he's envious of an account because we never see him do any work at all in this movie. He just sits in his office, watches television. He'll do the crossword. That's it, man. He'll sit there and listen to his Walkman. He just wants to fit in. Yes, that's yeah. it. And he'll, he says that. He says that's he keeps whole, the job yep. because he wants he to fit in. He just wants to fit in. And that's why he listens to hit music. That's why he wears what everyone else wears and dates a girl who looks like everyone else. And at the same time, trying to better these other people. But there's like a base level that he has to meet, you know, to fit in. Because why does anybody do anything to fit in? And it allows him to literally get away with murder. One of my favorite moments is right after he uh, kills Paul Allen. He's dragging the body in a uh, sleeping bag. Tra- blood's trailing everywhere, but no, everybody ignores this. But one, but one of my the, then comes one of my favorite moments where uh, Lewis uh, is with someone and spots him getting into a taxi cab. Patrick, is that you? And he and he just so nonchalantly says, "No, Lewis, it's not me." It just kills me every time because he thinks so little of Lewis that he's like, "I don't even need to fake my identity with him. He's so harmless. He's a little nothing to him." And then he says to him, "Where did you get that bag?" There's a <laughs> body leaking blood. He's putting it into a cab in a very suspicious manner. And Lewis says, "Where did you get that bag?" And John Paul Cotier. Yeah, Carruthers is the only character, Lewis Carruthers is the only one who kind of is a little bit different than the rest of them. Now, it comes out later on that he's this basically closeted homosexual, and (laughs) that's, to me, one of my favorite parts of the movie is when Patrick goes in. He's so angry, again, at Lewis's business card. I mean, business cards is (laughs) what motivates one one in a nearly two killings in this movie. And he's so angry about it that he goes into the bathroom in broad daylight and he's in a restaurant where he's known and has been seen to murder Lewis Carruthers. And then that turns from a murder scene into what Lewis thinks is a seduction scene. I love that because Patrick Bateman, if nothing else, he is so homophobic to the point where, you know, he keeps talking about how Paul Allen is a closeted homosexual, you know, the the whole Yale thing. He's definitely thrown some stones at some glass houses with that one, I feel. The guy is so self-centered. I'm talking about Patrick Bateman. He's so self-centered and so into himself and so into his looks that as he's having sex with these two prostitutes, that he is just constantly looking at himself, flexing his muscles, pointing at this camera, and I love that sex scene because it is just such a like a, a penthouse forum type sex scene or or better yet, a, a, a pornographic film sex scene uh, where it's just like, OK, we're going to fuck for a few seconds and switch and we'll fuck a little bit more and switch. And he does that both times it's, uh, in both sex scenes. It's like we'll just have sex in all of these different positions because that's what they do on these porno tapes that he's constantly watching at home. And then when he has sex with Samantha Mathis, her character is just always missionary. And it, 
just the b- most boringest sex ever. And I can't even imagine how sex with her would be in this movie because she's doped up to the gills every single time we see her. She is constantly on something. She's so high, she thinks she's at Dorja. And he <laughs> passes off Barcadia as Dorja. And I'm sure if we lived in New York in the 80s, we would know like what true restaurant in real life Barcadia was modeled on and what restaurant is the Dorja in real life. You know, she's like, oh, so this is Dorja, you know, but if these are the guys in her world, no wonder she's doped up. Going back to your point of, uh, you know, the self-made porn, if you will. I mean, he had to have had a, a nice thrill off of that because he was amongst he had to have been amongst the first of that generation to be able to actually replicate that fantasy. Of course, he has the money for the nice camera. He can afford the two women. <laughs> you know, he get you know, he you know, he gets off, uh, you know, he clearly gets off on making some of these fantasies real, whether it be sexual or, you know, murderous. Yeah, he learns uh, off the movies. He um, he sees the threesome. So that's what he does. And then he um, was watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. So that's what he does for his next murder. It's like he doesn't have any ideas of his own. He just kind of picks up things from other people, from movies that he sees. Uh, the time and place of, of that occurring, it just says a lot. Because, I mean, that's that's when you're starting to see VCRs in every home, even the the less fortunate, if you will. Um, so, you know, we he can finally re access those you know rewatch texas chainsaw texas, over and yeah. over again or in the book the body double you know he uh, no ideas of his own he, along what you were saying you know just uh literally living out his fantasies yeah he's constantly renting body double even when he wants to rent something else he ends up renting body double it so reminded me of when i worked at uh blockbuster in the uh late 90s or sorry late 80s early 90s and the people that would come in and just rent the same movies over and over again it was really kind of scary because they were never like you know oh i'm going to rent bambi 50 times it was always like this guy always rents clockwork orange he'll return it he'll take it out again and yeah it never occurred to him to buy it no right that was well, his thing that was like his ocd thing well, to add on to that, uh, to deviate a little bit, I worked at a I worked at a Suncoast for four years while I was in college. If you remember those, uh, along the similar lines, although much more innocent, we had a community of special needs people that would come in every Sunday. They'd walk through the mall, and we'd have them. You know, they'd come into our store, and we had this one uh, one special needs person that almost without failure every Sunday would buy, not rent, a VHS copy of The Sound of Music. And it always puzzled us because we didn't know if he was breaking it or if he just didn't understand. You know, uh, it was always a mystery to us. But, of course, we would never ask because that would be crossing a line. And then we were surprised. We were surprised one day when he bought West Side Story instead of Sound of Music. So (laughs) the the cycle was broken at some point. So, yeah, he definitely is this this mimic. You know, he kind of mimics what real people do, what the rest of these people in this horrible social circle of him, his are doing. It kind of reminds me of that, that moment in uh, the big Lebowski where uh, Jeff Lebowski sees uh, George HW Bush talking about how this aggression will not stand. And then how he uses that later on in, in the movie, there's this line that he keeps giving to his secretary, Gene Clo- played by Chloe Svenigny, where he keeps saying, just say no. And I'm just like, this is the time of just say no. Now, be 
people living in our time might not remember Nancy Reagan and her whole just say no campaign, but it was so pervasive. A friend of mine was eating lemon heads, that candy lemon heads. And when you flipped up the the interior flap on the Lemonheads box, it actually said, just say no across. <laughs> I mean, just say no was everywhere. And so Patrick using that just say no, it cracks me up. It might not even be what they meant in the book and in the movie that it was a reference to Nancy Reagan. But for me, it always cracks me up because it just reminds me of that damn Lemonheads box. Say no to drugs. And say yes to life. What would I do if someone offered me these drugs? I'd tell them to take a hike. You got to remember, I was like seven by the end of the 80s. So, of course, I was probably among the last of that particular generation to have that slammed at us in the D.A.R.E. program. And they made an entire fucking half-hour cartoon with Bugs Bunny, Chipmunks, all the popular cartoons at the time, just to tell us say no. What's funny is didn't work (laughs) our our generation is just (laughs) fucked up on drugs as any other and speaking of fucked up on drugs let's talk about jared leto it didn't even occur to me like even after listening to the book and there are several i mean this did occur to me they they call patrick bateman batman a few times in the book and i was like oh isn't that funny since christian bale would end up playing batman it didn't even occur to me until last night when i was watching it the scene of bale and jared leto I was just like, oh, wow. So this is Christian Bale's Batman squaring off against Jared Leto's The Joker. And we always know who's going to win in that scenario. Leto, I I will admit, I actually like the guy quite a bit. There are some roles that he plays that I'm not that much of a fan of. But most of the time, I mean, we we talked him up a lot during the Total La Hero episode because he was in Mr. Nobody, which if people haven't seen Mr. Nobody, I really recommend that film. He is perfect in this role as this vapid Paul Allen, the only the only one of Patrick's friends who doesn't necessarily seem to be as friendly as the others. And his murder scene, I mean, that's the scene that a lot of people go back to just because it takes so many of those great moments, those great things about this adaptation and puts them all into one area. That idea of mixing Patrick Bateman's music reviews that he does in the book with his murders was absolutely a stroke of genius and that's one of the reasons why i think we're still talking about this movie so many years later in the improvised dancing that she was not expecting it's perfect he's so happy he's so happy that he's gonna kill this guy because he's so angry and hates him so much for having a nicer business card which is you know when they pull out the business cards the sound is the slowed down sword coming out of a sheath and then it's just this classic ritualized masculine aggression, right? Instead of a business, instead of a sword, it's a business card, you know, the dramatic, right, pulling it out of the case. And then so they all compare business cards and then they go, what does Alan's look like? And like, it's the best one. And you just see him. He's just boiling over. just like macho. My business card isn't as nice as that. I'm going to kill him. Like almost like it's like, and then when he gets him in the apartment, he's so happy. He's so happy he gets to kill the guy now. That'll learn him. After he kills him, he sits there and the body's in the foreground. And it reminds me of Hitchcock. And she said it on the commentary, and but I picked up on it before. I see everything in kind of a classic movie lens. 
It reminded me of maybe like Trouble with Harry, where there's a corpse and people are just going about their business. And and so he just chills out. I rewatched this movie a few hours ago just to refresh myself. And that business card scene, what stuck out to me, I guess I never really put much thought into it until today. I've always known it's about power and who has the best taste, but... Really, it's just a dick sizing contest, if you will. I mean, like who who's got the you know? In this case, it's cards, but it, it cracks me up because that is a very universal thing. If you ever hang out with different groups of men, you know, if I if I go see family or if I'm with people who are car guys per se, it's all about oh, I've got this, you know, and I don't know shit about cars, so despite my family being full of mechanics, you know, though oh, I've got this engine head, I've got you know, I've got the three. Se- Shit yeah, I have just goes over my head. Right. I've run into it a couple times in my life. <laughs> but it's just that power thing. Like, oh, you think that's great? Well, look at this thing. It's like just laying your dick on the table. And I love that every single one of them is a vice president. And that's the whole thing, man, with like business guys is that it is this is, you know, this is Patrick Bateman, the vice president of so and so. And they will just put these fake-ass titles in front of people so that they can make employees feel better and, moreover, make people that they are calling or doing business with more impressed. You know, I'm dealing with the vice president of this company. Well, guess what? There are 30 guys that are vice president of this company. (laughs) Right, and they all all work and act and dress the same. Yes, I mean, that scene where they're looking at their business cards, I think this is the scene where there are three of them that are wearing glasses. And there's that's one of the moments where he gets mistaken for another guy. And he's like, well, no wonder he does this. And he does, you know, he's got this on, he's got this on, and we wear the same kind of glasses. And then Paul Allen has the same type of glasses. I'm pretty sure in the book, and I don't think they say it in the movie, that Patrick Bateman's glasses are fake. They're just glass. It's nothing in the lens. He just wears it to look smart. And another one of those things about artifice, which he's there 100% just all fakery and nothing behind the face, nothing behind those dead eyes of, of Tom Cruise that we are talking about earlier. I think he mentions that with himself, but as a few other people as well, that he mentions they're just kind of for style, which is just fucking hilarious because, you know, they, you know, how how much they are into the style of things that they don't care about functionality. It's just going to look good on me, you know, where whereas people like myself, I actually need them to see. (laughs) (laughs) I do, too. Yeah, I can't understand why they used to sell those like late 80s, early 90s at like Claire's Boutique and stuff, places in the mall, like glasses with, you know, just clear plastic or sometimes even no lens at all, just so you could look cool. You could probably still get them like at Hot Topic or something like that or buy a pair of cheap sunglasses and break the lenses out. If you really, really want to do this, like, why would anyone do that? Because as you said, I need mine to see. I would love not to need them. But there was that, you right. know, 15 minutes, shall we say, where it was like, you know, it was cool to have these really super expensive looking frames or whatever. When it comes to the uh, the Huey Lewis, the Paul Allen murder scene, talking about pointing, the whole idea of uh, Patrick Bateman pointing at himself and pointing at that camera, I love the way that Christian Bale uses his hands in that scene, especially when he like kind of jerks his arm and points at the CD case. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it, that, that he is so into Huey Lewis, I mean, just cracks me up because – 
the one kid who was into Huey Lewis and was so into four uh, <laughs> in my junior high was just the biggest dork in the world. And at the end of the day, I mean, Paul Allen even calls him a dork and he is, he's just a dork so much of the time he has. And, and the, uh, his lawyer, you know, uh, when he, uh, after he confesses, I know I'm jumping ahead, but he, I think he calls Patrick Bateman a dork. It's just like, yeah, he is the dorkiest guy that he, you know, and that's, I think one of the reasons why, uh, Gwen Turner gets murdered later on is when she's laughing at him for listening to Whitney Houston. Why would anybody listen? to this and he takes it all so seriously and oh my god and just he just doesn't even when you're reading those music reviews and when you're listening to him talk about music in the in the uh, movie he doesn't get it he doesn't get that this is bad music i mean there are some granted there are some phil collins songs that i absolutely love and i don't think there are any whitney houston songs that i actually love but he just the the flowery prose that he uses as he is talking about this and it just seems like as the bands get worse and worse he just seems to like them more and more especially when he talks about how he doesn't like those early days of huey lewis because they sound too new wave to him (laughs) so of course in the book he talks about whitney houston uh huey lewis in the news and phil collins and also in the book And he mentions that he doesn't devote a whole chapter, but he does mention talking heads a few times. And yet, Psycho Killer is not brought up once. And I don't know if that was intentional, just to, to, you know, because that might have been during the New Wave years of talking heads, I'm supposing, uh, in his mind. It just seems like that was ripe, but maybe it was a little too on the nose. I don't know. It was a little too obvious. Talking heads are a little bit too New Wavey for him, aren't they? I like that's just if it's I'm thinking if it's not on like, you know, top 10 radio, he's not interested. Yeah, I was very surprised that they make mention like, come on over and listen to the new Talking Heads album. And it's just like, you guys are into Talking Heads. That seems like the strangest thing to me. Well, it's of like course, that these was... things are not like the other. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's when they were becoming a bit more mainstream, you know. Oh, OK. That was <laughs> the uh, Nothing But Flowers era after they had broken right. through. Although I still love that song. I don't care if it's... I like nothing but flowers. Okay, thank you. The video is fucking badass. Let me just say that as well. Mm-hmm. I gotta check it out. I've, I'll I've check heard it, it out now. Video. I'll post it on the the, uh, the projection-booth.com uh, page for this so that people can actually see what we're talking about as well. After the Paul Allen scene, he starts to get uh, visits from this detective who's played by Willem Dafoe. And that's one of the differences between the book and the movie that I don't think necessarily works as well. And I think that uh, the folks behind uh, the movie would agree with me that he's supposed to be more of a contemporary of Patrick Bateman's. So he's supposed to basically be another one of these clones. So it's kind of like what good <laughs> yeah it, it's like it's like those the 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 what good is it having a trump supporter investigating trump you know it's just like <laughs> what good is it having this guy this yuppie scum investigating more yuppie scum and and but Willem Dafoe obviously a little bit older a little bit wiser but i do like what they did with his his uh portrayal apparently they would take they would tell him 
play the scene as if you know that he did it, play it as if you don't think that he did it, and play it as if you're not sure if he did it, and then they would cut those takes together because you never know where Willem Dafoe is at with this. You don't know if, like, when he says, oh, Huey Lewis in the news, and he's talking about the new CD that he picked up on the way over, is that a clue that he knows that Patrick Bateman murdered Paul Allen to Huey Lewis in the news? Or was it just coincidence? It, you know, again, if he was Patrick Bateman's uh, contemporary, then I would think one thing. But now that it's Willem Dafoe, this older, wiser detective character, I'm like, well, I'm not really sure. So th- there are things, pluses and minuses in both of those columns when it comes to that. But at the end of the day, again, that whole mistaken identity comes to his aid and he has no worries in the world. He's he's Rolo Tomasi. He's the guy that gets away with it. Because of being mistaken for Halberstram, he ends up with an alibi. He also behaves very oddly, I think, when he's talking to um, Kimball. I think his name is the Willem Dafoe character. To me, he behaves completely guiltily, just (laughs) goes to pieces. And I think if he was with another one of these clones, he wouldn't. But because the guy is older, is not from his world, and may or may not know what he's done. It unnerves him. In the book, it was a contemporary, and you know he wore Valentino suits. He had he looked just like another Wall Street boy. And as much as I and I do like William Defoe, Willem Dafoe's performance in this, he he plays it well, but it's uh, he also appears to be much smarter than uh patrick bateman so it's you know where they're meeting up and he says that's not where i place you you think oh he's fucking got him and he doesn't whereas if he if it was played by a contemporary you would have just said oh well you know nah there's no way this guy did that but willem dafoe it just feels like he knows but he just doesn't care or it's just too much of a bother for him i'm not sure which Having been a big fan of Columbo for all these years, I'm used to the bumbling detective who pretends like he doesn't know what's going on. (laughs) Oh, my God. I was just thinking of that. It's like Columbo. He pretends to be so stupid. And then he always, you know, they always he always catches them. And Bale even does the same thing. Patrick Bateman does the same thing that every criminal, well, every other criminal in a Columbo episode will do and say, oh, can I help you with this? And <laughs> and start to change their story and, like, you know, really try to get involved in the investigation, maybe kill somebody else to kind of throw them off of it. The way that he's using Paul Allen's apartment and trying to, like, set up more alibis and stuff. All of that stuff would just come crumbling down like a house of cards on Columbo. But... No, that this is not Columbo. This is, you know, welcome to New York City circa what, 1989. The rich can the rich have a free pass and get away with murder in this world. I was talking about how the walls are closing in on him and how he's just getting more and more crazy. Now, I have to say in the book it gets a little crazier as far as the level of violence and just the the insanity that comes around like by the end he's got body parts littering his room he's got hollowed out heads of women all over the place it looks like ed gein's you know uh ed gein would come in and say yeah this is a little much but i do like the way that it gets more and more wild and the murders get more and more wild the the murder of uh christy and um i can't remember is it elizabeth, elizabeth the, yeah. 
thank you. That is crazy. And that is, again, one of those amazing images. The, the sight of Christian Bale all completely toned up and just looking like such a beefcake naked except for his socks chasing around <laughs> poor poor christy with a chainsaw oh man that is one of those indelible things for me and him looking at her and pointing the chainsaw down the stairs i guess that's a very hitchcockian thing the whole uh, stairwell and then dropping that chainsaw on her Obviously, he must have tampered with the same chainsaw because I think there would have been a, a safety on there had he let go of it. But murdering her that way, that becomes one of many things that just gets crazier and crazier because we have a, a police chase where all of these police show up and he shoots a cop car and the cop car explodes. <laughs> I mean, it just gets so insane when it comes to this. And it, it just it's a this wildness. I mean, and that's the moment that I, I like in the book too, where we switch from first person narration of Bateman to third person narration, where he starts talking about himself in the third person and writing almost this adventure novel, Patrick Bateman's escape from the world of crime or whatever escape from the police. Yeah. It is just crazy. The, how nuts he gets. And then his confession on the phone, if you want to talk about unhinged, that to me is another moment where just Christian Bale is showing what a great actor he is when he just goes for it and is crying and laughing and sobbing and just telling us all of these things that anybody who's a fan of the book would know that they are coming from the book. But for me, it's great because we are already questioning how much of this now is real and how this is not real. Because again, when he shoots that cop car, for me, I was just like, whoa, that seems kind of nuts. And that all those cops converge all at one time. I was just like, this doesn't seem like we're in the real world anymore. Well, of course, if you notice his his reaction, he even has a look like he looks at the gun. He looks at the car like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> you know, it's just like, did you know, he of course, he's losing his, you know, edge of sanity as well. I mean, he just goes further and further down that rabbit hole of insanity even in the movie and the book, you just don't know what's real and what's not. When he's chasing her with the chainsaw and she's banging on doors and, and nobody opens the door even to complain about the noise. <laughs> like not even, I wouldn't expect anybody to come out and help her, but I would at least expect somebody to complain about the noise, you know, um, or maybe in New York, it's, it's not unusual. I don't know, but um, well, it just seems like that part of it. Okay. Nobody opens the door, whatever he, and then the fact that the chainsaw does kill her and it, it does keep going when he throws it, I was like, okay, this is maybe where we go into the realm of fantasy now. Mm -hmm. And then certainly the car chase and all that stuff, that I don't think that's real. Um, and then when you get to the end with the apartment, um, I feel like the realtor is in on it. And so oddly enough, when he goes in there, a lot of people argue that that scene is an indication of it being a fantasy because he goes in and, you know, the bodies aren't there and, and there's no signs of anything weird. They're selling the place. It's just been freshly painted. And to me, I saw it the opposite way. Like they're painting over what he's done and the realtor like knows it's him and what he's done. And that's why she's like, get out of here now. Don't come back. Right. Well, I'm actually with you there, Paula. That's that's kind of where my uh, opinion lies. I think 
the scene, you know, the ATM tells him to feed me a stray cat. Definitely fucking. Definitely not real. Definitely not real. Him shooting the cop car is definitely not real. However, I do feel it's his reality. Um, you know, as he's sure. getting crazier and crazier. You know, part of my work, and it's not my main focus, but uh, you know, I, I do work with the the mentally, you know, handicapped sometime, and you know, people who are schizophrenic or who, you know, that's that's their reality. <laughs> you know, so I don't doubt that it is real for him, but whether it's real in the real world as we know it, um, and you know. Maybe I'm reading a little too much into it, uh, but, you know, as far as the people not opening the doors, I mean, you could look at that one of two ways. You can either think that that scene is his psychosis and not real, or in my mind, I personally think that scene is real with the exception of dropping the chainsaw. I don't know anybody who has that aim and that luck, but I think like her banging on the doors, I think that's real. And my justification for it is, and you can say I'm full of shit. Obviously, Paul Allen lives in a very swanky, rich apartment complex. I don't think it's too inconceivable to think that everybody has a soundproof home. Uh, you can call bullshit on that. Mm. That's kind of how I justify it. Well, the one thing that I noticed when I was rewatching last night was, and I can't remember if this is Bateman's apartment or Allen's apartment. There's a a shot from the outside that they show twice where there's just one apartment that's lit up. And everything else is dark. So I don't know, again, if that's Patrick Bateman's apartment or if that's Paul Allen's apartment, but there's nothing else there. So the only person that seems to be in the building. And, I mean, that's that's the logical explanation, I guess, is that he's the only person in the building at that point. But whatever. I mean, I like the idea that some of this movie seems to get into this irreality because we have a very unreliable narrator in the book. We have an unreliable narrator in the movie. I mean, the one thing that always gets me in the book is what was it when he takes a bite of a dove bar and there's a, a bone inside of it. And it's just like, okay, yeah, something's really fucked up here. <laughs> we, we are not dealing with somebody with a full deck. And Again, we've we've got this thing, so it's like, okay, how much is real? How much is not real? Did he really murder these people? Did he not murder these people? I mean, I would tend to think that he does murder some people, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because he manages to get away with all of it, and he just kind of retreats behind this mask of sanity. I mean, I love when... Uh, how they tie in Ronald Reagan himself to Patrick Bateman, where it's just like, look at this guy, look at how he's lying his ass off and he is completely you know, uh, just selling it. He, he, he uh, what was it? He presents himself as a harmless old codger, but on the inside and Bateman picks up that line and continues it via voiceover about, but inside doesn't matter. There are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it, I have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me, and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. 
No new knowledge can be extracted from my telling. This confession has meant nothing. He is no better off at the end than he is at the beginning. And if anything, it reminds me of that ending of Clockwork Orange where Alex has been cured all right. And he's just he's the worst. He's a worse person now because people think that he's a good person. Definitely. You know, I've never made that connection, but I totally see that now. <laughs> it's weird when I say that because I also thought when I was watching last night that the only person that seems to get a glimpse inside of Patrick is Jean, his secretary, who is it's crazy how much she is in love with this guy, but she's fallen in love with that artifice. And she gets a glimpse by looking through his date book and seeing all of these doodles that he's doing. The doodles always kind of reminded me of those horrible, that horrible artwork that they did in uh, Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> Just that like seventh grade art kind of thing, maybe fifth grade art. And as she's looking through these, the, this date book, things are getting worse and worse. And it kind of reminded me of, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy because he's just losing touch with reality as each day goes by. Yeah. She is also, I believe, the only woman to escape his apartment due to a fortunately slash unfortunately timed call from his pseudo fiance, Evelyn, played by, of course, Reese Witherspoon and just props to Chloe Savigny. I thought she did an excellent job because she's very understated. Yet you can tell she has a crush on this guy. She's just in the first thing, the first scene when you see her, she's waiting for him to say something nice to her, anything nice to her. And he said, but he says something rotten to her and she'll take that. Like he's like, don't wear that outfit again. And she's just like, okay. She thinks he's so dreamy. And when he's like, get out or something bad's going to happen, we know what he means, but she's probably taking it in another way. Get out of here or I'm going to cheat on my fiance with you. I can't control myself when I'm around you. I definitely have to be on the um, the opposite side of the spectrum here because I, I love Chloe Sevigny. I think she's a wonderful actress. And yet I think she was wrong for this role. You know, even again, watching it today, I'm trying to keep keep a lookout for that uh you know puppy dog love look and i just don't get that from her i think she's a wonderful actress i just think to me she didn't exude that like eager to please i mean she went through the motions i just don't think uh i don't know maybe it's because i've seen her in so many other things where she's kind of uh you know, tougher, the tougher woman. And, and, you know, uh, Hmm. I just don't, I don't see her as a wallflower. And like I said, I love her as an actress. I just, uh, this is the one role I just, I thought she was miscast in. Um, and I don't think it's her fault. I just, I don't buy her as the lovelorn secretary, but that's, that's just me. I don't, I know a lot of people love her in that role. I'll go right down the middle and say that she has been in so many movies that I don't like that, I have kind of transferred some of that to her. Are you saying you don't love Julian Donkey Boy? I walked out of Julian Donkey <laughs> Boy. Uh, I didn't walk out of Kids, though I would never watch it again, not even on a bet. And I, I fast forwarded through the Brown Bunny. So, well, oh man, Brown Bunny, she'll never live that down. Uh, she's batting zero for me. I, really, I'm sorry to sorry to deviate for a moment. Me and my friends, we were uh, when I went when I was in college, we went to an L.A. Uh, a screening of the Brown Bunny when it was brand new. 
uh, when it first came out at the New Art Theater, and uh, Vincent Gallo was in person to uh, present. And well, we we all loved all. All my group of friends loved uh, Buffalo 66. I don't know where you lie on that, but we love that movie. And first of all, Brown Bunny sucks. Let's just be real. But we sat next to a guy who only went to the movie because he wanted a good seat for the midnight screening of the uncut Wild at Heart. Can't blame him. I wish I'd went to that, too. But the whole time the guy just sat there like this was the movie was bad enough. But then to hear this guy next to me, that's just ugh, ugh. Oh my god! The entire fucking movie. I get you don't like it. I'm not having as much fun with it it as I thought. But just shut your fucking mouth. I thought that he was there just to masturbate for the the blowjob scene. When you said like there was this guy and he was just there, (laughs) I was like, oh god. No, I only knew that because he spoke very loudly and spoke like, I don't even want to see this piece of shit. I'm just here for Wild at Heart at midnight. I'm like, like okay, again, I don't blame you, but. Shut up. Be quiet. Take your coat, leave it on the chair, go out to the lobby, and just look on your phone. Yeah. yeah. How about leave the premises entirely? Right. Go home. As the owner of a movie theater, it's not behavior that I condone at all. I, I don't know about you guys. I don't know which was worse, that theater experience or my watching uh, a history of violence with a guy, a row behind me, just farting the whole time. Not even caring. Just loud as can be, and I'm just like, are you fucking for real? <laughs> Interesting way to watch a Cronenberg movie. Kind of brings body horror to a new level. <laughs> I'd say that the yuppies are still here. They're just not fashionable anymore. But there are still people like this. I also think that how he goes through his beauty routine, I think subconsciously, this is my dime source psychology, he's associates that with becoming more feminine but they fear that he fears that so that's part of the reason why he acts out on women so badly well they're the prototypical metrosexuals but they god tell you ate it too yes they yeah there's a duality to them that they just can't come come to deal come to what's the word i'm looking for they just can't cope with it yes thank you Mm -hmm. Right. That they're they're doing these things that had been the province of women. Now they're going to get manicures, they're getting treatments, facials, what he goes to get a massage or whatever. And the other thing is it, it very much reminded me of Shadow of a Doubt. His kitchen is like a morgue, stainless steel. Like I think I was probably in my twenties before I saw a stainless steel fridge. <laughs> what he had must have cost thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, in person, you'd see that like on TV, rich people had them. But I mean, before anyone I knew had it, I, I was probably in my 20s. That was something that um, Mary Heron highlighted in her commentary. But I was I was kind of proud of myself that I picked up on that. that it was like <laughs> the drawers of a morgue, you know, like the city morgue or whatever, where they keep the people in the drawers. But that just goes to show how much money he has, how much he has to show off. Because, you know, good oh, and well, sure. He doesn't cook in there. He doesn't, you know, that's all for show. That's out of a catalog. The book explains it a bit more in some of the scripts that it's meant to look like it's literally out of a catalog. And I I can almost guarantee. Right. I mean, you can almost guarantee he just opened up Better Homes and Gardens or whatever the yuppie version of that is in the 80s and says, make this happen. Well, yeah, it goes back to that. Ed Norton character is just like, oh, I want it to look just like the Ikea catalog. (laughs) Right. 
I love the artwork that he has in his room, in his apartment. I mean, there's we talked about the Les Mis poster. In the book, there's this whole running theme of this uh, David Annika painting, which people have said that it is probably Sunrise with Broken Plates, which I'm not sure if that makes sense or not, because that picture is very obviously has a a top and a bottom. <laughs> uh, I kept thinking that it would be much more of a abstract thing where you can't necessarily tell what the top and the bottom of the picture is because at one point somebody comes in and laughs at him and because his picture has been upside down for this whole time. And it's more about buying this art and, oh God, didn't I just hear about art being an investment from Ivanka Trump? Oh, wait, no, I, I must be mistaken about that. Anyway, um, this whole thing about art is being an investment, and he is so proud of how he got this painting for a deal, but he won't tell anybody the low price that he paid for it. He just keeps inflating the price that he paid for it. But in the apartment in the movie, they've got these things, uh, surrogate paintings by Alan McCollum, which aren't actually paintings at all. They're... Um, I think it's like uh, ceramic, and they basically look like empty frames. Those are what's on one of the walls. Like you can see it the first time. I think we look in his apartment, just all all on the wall, and are are all these rectangles on the wall, and there's nothing inside of it, which I think is very appropriate for Patrick Bateman. And then the other thing is these two big prints of uh, this thing called. It's a series of. Uh, I think it's photographs possibly by robert longo called men in cities robert longo who i've been trying to get an interview with for the longest time because a lot of people know him from the art world i know him from being the director of johnny mnemonic so uh if, if anybody's got a contact with robert longo definitely put him in touch for the longest time i thought they were two different people but apparently they are the same person and robert longo we've talked about this on the show before he was also the director, as far as I know, of this amazing short that was made for MTV, one of these bumpers with Steve Buscemi, that I absolutely love this this little short where he just is spouting from music lyrics as he's trying to woo this woman. So you could write papers about his apartment and the artwork that is in, in his apartment. We're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. The first is from Roberta Hanley. The second is from director Mary Heron, and the third is from co-writer and actress Guinevere Turner. And we'll be back with those right after these brief messages. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. But we're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. 
Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we are going to hear from screenwriter Roberta Hanley. Can I ask you a few questions about um, kind of how you got into the business? I had always been writing screenplays. I went to Duke University for two years and was a criminologist, a parole officer for juvenile court when I was 16. And I kind of thought it would be more interesting to do something more inspirational than sort of doing what I was doing and kind of failing. I managed to keep people out of prison and things like that, but I could see that there was sort of like an interest in, believe it or not, love stories and just sort of holding the community together that way. And I'd have to say that I completely failed at that mission too, since I've been 
the author of American Psycho and other things that were really too complicated. They're not really feeding into like family values. I went to um, Hampshire College after two years at Duke. There I started to write, direct, and act in experimental TV production, which were videos that went into the Museum of Modern Art in Boston. And so I started to sort of do more video production, art, you know, art videos. And I had one called Room Full of Mirrors that was done to a Hendrix song. And I was interested in um, refractive glass and see-through images and sort of experimental video techniques that are quite old school right now. And I also did a song to uh, Vicious and Walk on the Wild Side, a video to that that went into the Museum of Modern Art. So it sort of segued into different things. The one that had Vicious and Walk on the Wild Side was actually one where me and a punk were making out. Uh, we used it at the school to show that showing less physical skin was sexier than a girlfriend of mine who believed in showing everything and almost having sex on screen was sexy. And so we did an experiment where my video, which showed extreme close-ups of skin touching and moving and kissing, very explicit kissing, was sex more sexy than um, almost pornographic images that my friend was supplying and the whole school voted. So we did that. And it was kind of interesting because it showed that you could be more enticing or, or, or I wonder what it would be engaging with a little bit less than uh, showing everything. So it was the old Hollywood concept, less is more. I don't know. That's how it happened, though. That's the honest truth is that I was hoping for a different mission and ended up when I found Chris Hanley, my husband, being very, very influenced by um, modern literature and A.M. Holmes and, you know, Freddie Stanellis and others like that. So I ended up doing a lot of adaptations. The only one that really was a love story was really Paolo Coelho's um, Veronica Decides to Die, which I adapted. And also the movie that I directed, Woundings, was a form of a love story, but it, it had my values, which were anti-war. So it was an anti-war film, anti-landmines before the Gulf War. So I've always had an anti-war stance. Did Muse Productions exist before you and Chris got together? No, but I formed it. After college, I took a job working for a, um action movie director, Jim Glickenhouse, and I was, um, it's the first job where I was a secretary, and he showed me how he independently financed his movies through pre-sales at Cannes. And I took his guidelines and formed Muse, and then proceeded to uh, work on, on scripts. I was always writing scripts. I wrote a script called History of a Playboy as a Young Man, and uh, that had a scene in it that uh, was sent to Fellini, and he used the scene in Casanova, which was the scene with the large birthday cake, and the hallway uh, where you walk to the large birthday cake, which was the size of the entire room. And you have the Casadova's birthday, and you walk down the hallway, and you see the pictures of all the women that he had. So he copied that and put it in the movie. And that was the version with Donald Sutherland. And then I went to Hollywood and um, tried to uh, show my screenplay, which was called Primitive Love. 
an agent at ICM. God, I have to get you his name. He's like the head of ICM was introduced to me and he said, why don't you write something smaller? This is a little bit like D.W. Griffith's Intolerance. And it was the story of um, love in a sort of a pattern of uh, reincarnation between different periods in history. And he said it reminded him of uh, in, of Intolerance by D.W. Griffith. And therefore, um, we should think smaller. So then I wrote something um, smaller that was more like, a, I guess, a love story with a young girl and sort of a promiscuous male. And that was what happened. And she was very romantic. And it was kind of a romantic piece. And then we lost touch until years later when I brought him, funnily enough, London Fields. And he wanted to, he loved the script, shut down the entire agency to read it, you know. And then he wanted to give it to Adrian Lyon, who was in France, and he loved the script. And so that was sort of the be- one of the first people who really liked the script and believed in it. And I do consider London Fields uh, sort of in my oeuvre of having a romantic concept uh, where it's a female lead who is unloved, let's say, and who was sort of left out in the cold due to the man that she loves not wanting her. And it also has another theme of mine, which is sort of um, premonition. And that, that was a theme that I really cared about. And um, that was also in Primitive Love, which was the one that was sort of compared to D.W. Griffith, which had reincarnation and all that. So I kind of um, was trying to connect my concept of um, true love, soulmate, which Paolo Coelho also believes in, and that type of thing. I guess it doesn't really lead to American Psycho that easily. <laughs> I just got convinced with American Psycho. I just got convinced because the producers had a draft with Ed Pressman that was just so awful. And oddly enough, it was the um, Nor- uh, Norman Snyder version that was just so terrible. And it was originally for David Cronenberg to direct. And it was so terrible that I just thought, this is ridiculous. They have almost a hostility towards New York, which is not what it's about. Although it's a hostility towards Wall Street, which has been since converted into a misinterpretation as though it's a swan song to Wall Street. And it's been embraced by Wall Street bankers as their favorite movie. We weren't expecting that. What happened was we went from... Looking at the Norman Snyder script where he had like bones, you know, around a trash can with fire going. It was in every music video that year. I just thought it had sort of a hostility towards New York and it didn't really have any anything to offer. So I remember Annie Pressman and, and said, Roberta, why don't you just go write it? So I said, that was Ed Pressman's wife. So I just did. And then that version eventually went back to Buddy Snellis, where he would polish it. That version was the version that went to Mary Heron, which was then used to make the final version of the film, a version that should have been credited to me, was not. About 85% of the movie was written by me, and I didn't get credit for it, um, partially due to my own error, where I didn't submit it to the WGA. Um, once the film was shot, I believe Mary Heron and Gwen Turner, with a bit of help from Brady Stanella, actually spent about, I think, four weeks writing it. 
And I think, as we all know, you can't write American Psycho from a 360-something page book in four weeks where I had every line of the book memorized and actually informed the writer, Brady Stanellis, that the British version that was published with a different cover and the American version was also missing one line. Between the two, the British version had missed one line where U2 was in it, where this American Psycho and his friends were in a limo, and they went to a stadium in New Jersey to see U2 perform. And at the performance above Bono's head was, I am the devil. Well, I informed East Nellis that in the British version, that line was taken out. And um, he wasn't aware of that. It's a very difficult book. It took me about two and a half years to get to the point where I offered it to Mary Heron. And then when she wrote it, it was done in supposedly four weeks. Even Norman Snyder took three months. I mean, it's physically impossible. But there was a lot of difficulty on the set where there was a person called Ernie Barbarash who worked for Lionsgate, was very, very offensive, um, was continually saying he was going to shelf the movie. It had so much scandal. There were so many obstacles shooting in Toronto where there was a serial killer that was nothing like this one, but locations were being shut down uh, the day of shooting. Like a restaurant was like, I thought I could do it, but my clients don't want it. It's going to be a problem, so we can't use the location today. So there was tremendous pressure, even with our female director and things like that, which I'm sure was a politically correct move to take a female director in this story. Uh, but I think it was obviously a premeditated move to have one, hoping that that would allay people's fears that it was in good hands, so that it wasn't going to be feeding into any sort of anti-female venting with violence. And that is the case. It did, it did sort of create a movie that didn't have that as a criticism, which is the case because it's not criticized for killing females. It's actually criticized for the superficiality of the material, wealthy individual, Pat Bateman, and how his wealth just basically created a, a protection around any sort of crime he would create so that his surface wealth and his surface appearance and his handsomeness would actually sort of immunize him against any sort of potential criticism and even prosecution from slaughtering women or, or anybody. He also killed some men in an action sequence. So, and the bomb which was a male, and I'm sure there, there were many other instances in the book that included men. He killed the male, a stockbroker played by Jared Leto, I guess managed to sort of create a version, uh, you know, there was like a, a presentation that didn't inspire that kind of criticism, especially in Mary Heron's capable hands, where she made sure that it wasn't anything other than a satire. I'm curious, how did you go about figuring out how you're going to adapt it for the screen? The first thing was picking the scenes, and that was pretty much it, whether you started in the taxi going from Pat's place downtown and whether you would see as much as you saw or not. Like there were some almost hallucinatory bits where you saw a bum with a whip whipping a hot dog, I remember, in one script. 
or not, but it was that monologue in the taxi scene that was so important. It was really just isolating the very scenes first. And that's why, obviously, it's pretty clear that you, the lack of credit is sort of a big shame because part of what was done was obviously locating the main scenes, putting them in the exact same order that they were presented in the in the final film. As I say, it was really my fault for not getting credit as well as the intimidation from uh, this employee of Lionsgate, but it was my fault for not putting it into the WGA after once they had a final edit. I had a lawyer who just didn't recommend anything, and I was new to town, and it was really my first time being in a Hollywood uh, production. So I had no idea that there was any recourse other than the fact that, you know, the production was being attacked by every which way, and there were always threats that it would shut down. So I wasn't really told that even though it's very dicey on the set, I was really a novice that you still supply your version, which funnily enough, everybody did. Like there were people who had nothing to do with the movie who were supplying versions of the script I heard, which shows you that it's not considered anything that one should be told would stop a production from coming out. And they did want clearly female writer, director, that kind of thing. And I was a female or still am. It would have been a potentially okay event. I think they just at that point uh, wanted Mary Heron's name on it because she had done a movie about Andy Warhol. Yeah, I shot Andy Warhol. Exactly, which is why she was given the, the movie to direct because although I hadn't seen the movie, it was a very big presentation in, in uh, Sundance and I was at home with the flu and I was watching TV and I could tell intuitively that she was the right one to do it. Back then, you had the ability to call Sundance, I don't know if you still do, and you get the names and contacts of everybody there. I think we had a movie in the festival, probably it was Freeway by Matthew Bright, who I adore. I believe that once you're in the festival, you're able to get everybody else in the festival's contacts. And so we had Mary Heron's contacts immediately. I just called, I think, Chris there and contacted her. And um, I definitely did a white lie and say that, you know, I saw her movie and think she'll be great to do it. And she said, oh, I know the book. I've read it. I don't think it can be turned into a script. And I said, yes, it can be. And I'll show you how. Just look at my script. And Ed Pressman agreed that she should read the script and that it would be a good idea. And it sort of, you know, it hit all the right notes. So they sent it to, I sent it to her. And then there was a meeting with Ed Preston, which I was not present at. And then she mentioned she would obviously conform the script to her vision. I did run into Gwen Turner the other day, like about two months ago. And I said to her, it's funny that, you know, she feels comfortable in having taken the credit for four weeks of work on a script that, I mean, I wouldn't be able to do that, but I don't think she's really worked that much since. And I don't think that the screenwriting that I've exhibited, I think it, I think the screenwriting that I've exhibited is a continuation of that style, whether it's London Fields or otherwise. It shows my ability to do book adaptations, whether it's A.M. Holmes's In a Country of Mothers or Laura Restrepo's uh, Leopard in the Sun or Paolo Coelho's Veronica Decides to Die. I am known for my book adaptations, whereas I don't think that Gwen Turner is known for that ability. 
And I don't think Mary Heron's particularly known for having done that successfully either. The movie was made for very little, like seven and a half million. And I also designed the calling cards and the calling card scene. And I was on the set and I cast Jared Leto. And I actually believe Jared should be the lead. I just thought he was so much better looking. <laughs> but that was where we differed. And Mary Heron had found real interest uh, in uh, Christian Bale. So that's how it went that way. But originally I was promoting Jared Leto as being the correct one. And then he took the second role and he was amazing in it. And in fact, all the actors uh, were amazing in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the performances in that movie are still so outstanding. And extraordinary, and Christian Bell was amazing. He was totally in character every day, and he didn't fraternize. He went right to the gym, just like the character, every day, and did the several hours of workouts. And I think the only conversation I had with him on the set was whether he used steroids or not to get to where he was. And he said no, because that would be out of character, you see? It was really interesting because at the time, many actors were just pumping up and looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something with the help of drugs. And he wasn't doing that. He was just doing it the proper way. And he's a remarkably lovely actor. I mean, everybody in the, the whole experience was really lovely. When I was in high school outside of America, when I came to college, I had studied, you know, the usual Tennessee Williams and Faulkner and Fitzgerald and just all these people. And I had noticed that they really didn't want to own up to white poverty. And somehow or other, it wasn't in the TV shows and it wasn't in anything. And so I didn't understand that. Like, why were they like, why did they always say it was black poverty? Why did they say that there was no what we would call like white trash or anything at all like that's white? I found that very strange, especially because, you know, there they were uneducated living in trailer parks everywhere you looked, especially near Duke. And I just didn't understand it or Flint or wherever. And I didn't really understand how they could just ignore the poverty among the white people. I didn't think it was constructive. And then continually talk about poor black people who um, were certainly uh, poor, and they were more than happy to acknowledge them, but they wouldn't acknowledge anyone white that was poor. They were very ashamed of that. Like, white people should be doing better, so let's not talk about it. Like, that was a cure. It was very strange. It was sort of against um, reality. And then Jerry Springer came on, and everybody showed up with, you know, very natural opinions and had no trouble expressing themselves. And, you know, another talk show started to bring on white America as well as black America and basically give everybody a voice. And it was like the common denominator. It was sort of after the Reagan time where Nancy Reagan was wearing like $50,000 dresses and everybody was supposed to be doing better than the neighbors. And if not, let's cut the neighbor off. I mean, that was the beginning of like, you know, poor politics in America where there was an anti sort of health, you know, care of the people that were beneath you economically. And obviously now we're at the peak of that. Yeah, which I think is one of the reasons why I'm revisiting American Psycho, just because the 80s feel like they've really made a resurgence as far as that me first kind of attitude. Yeah, well, when we made it, we thought that Wall Street would hate us. So we actually moved out of town. 
before we made the movie, but as we were optioning the book and writing it and stuff like that, we just figured New York is going to kill us. And we moved out of New York because every time we went to some film person's office as well, they would always be watching the stock market on the TV while we were doing an appointment. And we just thought that, you know, with the end of um, rent control and all of our friends having to leave, you know, the Lower East Side and everything being gentrified, that we just figured it wasn't New York anymore, which was like, you know, sort of a wild and crazy place. And it was getting less wild and crazy. And Times Square was being gentrified by conglomerates. And it just seemed like it wasn't the fun thing where we'd go and investigate a stripper club. And we could see, like, everything happening, like, right there on Times Square. Now Times Square is more for Pokemon than it is for, like, what it used to be. So it's just different. And we didn't really think that the Wall Street influence, while Chris and I were dating even, they would, like, make bets. Oh, I bet she'll eat this and she won't eat that. Or I bet this and I bet that. And I would just say to them, don't bet on me. Like, don't even look at me. Like they, they basically, um, in the end, we were right. They brought down the world with the economic crisis of 2008. And we just, we just couldn't stand the whole atmosphere leading up to 2008. We really didn't like it. And we could see that they had the worst values that we could ever imagine. We're very surprised at how they use it as a banner. American Psycho is like something to be proud of. That's their best shot at, um, uh, identity and they love it i love it too but i love it because it's critical well i read uh at least one of your drafts of the screenplay and that it opens on trump's yacht just it floored me as soon as i read that oh yeah we have that one yeah we have that one too yeah there were so many drafts um that's so funny because when i yeah, that one um, I actually sent back to Lionsgate and said, isn't it time for us to do, you know, a remake or allow me to finally write one, you know, to sort of rectify the, the sort of thing? They, they they go to anybody but me to write anything, whether it's a TV series version or a movie. They're always like saying, oh, yes, yeah, we understand. I'm so sorry you didn't get your credit. And then when it comes to developing it, I could write it. I mean, I have the whole book memorized practically. I could write write it based on scenes left behind and connect the dots so easily. Like it would take the matter of two months. Other people would take years. And it would be so easy to do an American Psycho with the Trump and this and that. It's just lots of fun. I mean, Trump was on the yacht. He's having a party. There's dead girls in the water. And the paparazzi are photographing them, and there's somebody sort of having sex, uh, probably with one of the people. I don't know if it was Paul Allen or Marcus Haberstam or whoever, but one of the people wasn't the American psycho, I don't think, Pat Bateman. But um, I have that draft, and I sent it like just a matter of two months ago, and I said, "Gosh, it's it's so timely, you know, this sort of anti-materialism sentiment." They just, you know, they apologized for burying the franchise. And then they made the second version without our consulting on the script or even Chris and I still haven't even seen it. You know, I tried to watch it, but it was unwatchable. So I turned it off. And that was like a year ago. We just haven't watched it. 
Mila Kunis is a very good actress, but at the time she couldn't act. You know, she had trouble like holding the scene when she walked across the room. So it was just, it was just terrible. And I didn't understand why they wanted to make it a girl or anything like that. I really didn't because the book had so much. There, my scripts, um, some of them were far more violent with the malice and the, and the cheese. And nowadays after Blumhouse and all that and the desensitizing of the audience, you could actually do American Psycho in a more deeply scary version. Instead of it being sort of surface, you could actually watch it and get scared or, for, or more engaged, which I find kind of interesting. But I also think that the history of the book that went back to Harvard and Bethany and that also has like, you know, going to see you too and sort of a little bit more of the fun with champagne flutes, not just calling cards. And I kind of wanted to see what would happen with like um, a theme that was different from the book a little bit, where at the end it hinted that he had still had the secretary still basically waiting for him while his girlfriend was also waiting for him. And then the OJ trial seemed to be looming after the book. And I kind of thought that OJ was sort of like Pat Bateman, where he had convinced himself that he hadn't done it. And so I kind of wanted to see the trial at the end of the story that was that would inevitably happen, because uh, I think they blamed it on the other person in the story. And I would have thought that that would lead to some sort of trial, or maybe Pat would be watching him himself and basically forgetting that he had done it, as well as he had added on many that he hadn't done. Uh, when he confessed over the phone, he also was um, capable of forgetting that he'd done the one that he had done. So, you know, he was mental, as they say in England. It was kind of interesting. And I had studied schizophrenia and all these different aspects um, before that. And I thought that it would be really fun to revisit the story and to actually write something that was obviously scary but also something that was interesting too, you know, that would actually have the things that Brett wrote that were um, very literary and beautifully written that are just sitting there. Dialogue that's extraordinary, not just stash and fandom, you know, the, the punks and the restaurant, but other things. So I thought that would be really good and that there were scenes and dialogue, whole tranches that would really work. Well, I have to say that the Muse Productions has done an amazing job. I mean, you guys have produced some terrific films. I mean, I'm a big fan of the film Spun. I Woke Up Early the Day I Died, I think, is one of the best Ed Wood ad- adaptations. Oh, great. Well, we're working with um, Arise Eliopoulos again. He has an idea for another, uh, I think it's a cowboy version of the Ed Wood sort of interest that he has. And I think he has a very good sense of humor. His beauty and his photography and casting was really lovely. I mean, he has great style. He's um, an amazing director. So we have to get him out again. And I guess with um, Spawn, that was uh, more Chris's choosing. It was the first Speed Freak movie with another great writer, uh, Will De Los Santos. And that was presented to us while we were moving into the Muse office in Venice. A person who was pretty much living on the street, who was the writer. And he said, hey, I've got the best script in the world. What do you think about 
you know, you're a film company. Why don't you read it? And Chris said, well, there's nothing fresher than getting something straight from the street. And so he read it. And I believe Tim Petternell was the one talking to him and sort of suggesting, yeah, I guess, you know, Chris will read it. I'll read it. And so it was really Chris and Tim Petternell who were like, yeah, I'll do that. And, um, and then when they read it, they were like, this is the greatest. And, um, the writer who wrote with him the story basically was more of a transcriber because I don't know if you know the story of Spun, but Will De La Santos was still on tremendous amounts of crisp, of, you know, of crystal math. And what happened was is he couldn't stand still. So when this writer said, I'd really like to write your story with you, of you and your friends, you know, what's happening here? He said, okay. And then Will was so completely spun out that he had to actually gaffer tape him to the chair. So that, And then he was talking so quickly, he had to actually videotape it because he couldn't type fast enough. So then the story was basically transcribed by the co-writer. And then the other thing was, was that the other writer then came in, uh, sorry, the other characters came in. And as they came in, they also had to be gaffer taped to chairs. So it was a riot. I mean, really terrific. And Will is a serious sort of poet writer who writes for us still. He wrote um, Mama Black Widow by Iceberg Slim, and uh, he's just a remarkably uh, fine writer, and he has a Transloco project that's coming up that I believe we're producing, which is very good sort of drag queens in the Spanish area and trans people who are in the Spanish part of town and how a young uh, son is trying to struggle with the violence of his older brother who continually attacks and harms that community while he's coming out of the closet, the younger brother. So it's a really good one, a bit a bit like a Spanish moonlight, but it doesn't have the prison theme. He's a very fine writer. I think he came from San Francisco where he published poetry and um, had a, like a bit of a publishing background, I, I recall, before he sort of hit the street. We like him very much. And which other one did you say you liked? Oh, I was saying The uh, Killer Inside Me. The Killer Inside Me, the Jim Thompson. That was spectacular. We love it. We absolutely love it. We love Jim Thompson. We had other Jim Thompsons that we didn't quite make yet. Well, you did The World Then Fireworks. Wasn't that a Thompson as well? uh, This World Then the Fireworks. Yes. Yes, we made that one. And we had another one as well. This World Then the Fireworks was with Michael Oblowitz. Yeah, I thought it was a great version and that the acting and everybody and the the look of it was extraordinary. And yet I think that the director um, should have been acclaimed after that, but I think somehow it didn't really happen the way we had hoped. And I don't really know why that was, but I think that um, that movie had a great director and it, you know, we like our films to start careers. I think after that, I think he was, because he was um, capable of doing commercials, I think he fled into commercials. And then he did, uh, I think, action movies with Steven Seagal. But we're trying to get him back out to do some, I think, a surfer film, because that's what he is, is a surfer. And he knows the surfer community in Venice really well, like intimately. And he did a surfer documentary that was pretty significant, I think, last year. I mean, we really like our movies to give people jobs and to start careers. 
That's kind of what we really believe in, which goes back just funnily enough, Duke University, where I might not have been able to inspire that much interest in romantic themes, but I certainly do employ people so that keeps them out of jail. And I kept a lot of kids out of jail that were as old as 18 when I was at Duke and as a parole officer for juvenile court. And um, I think that's pretty much what I still do. One of the movies that you guys produce that I've been dreaming of doing an episode on is the film Tiptoes. Oh, yeah. Well, Matt Bright is in Joshua Tree right now writing for us. He did an amazing job on that. There were arguments with the um, producer company that paid for the film about the ending, which we were on Matthew's side. The ending was supposed to be where Gary Oldman was in the jacuzzi. Kate Beckinsale, the beauty, comes towards him, and, and they decide to stay together. And the company itself just couldn't reconcile with that. They just couldn't believe it. And we had Peter Dinklage in it. You know, the actors were extraordinary. I mean, really extraordinary. I think, what is it, four out of four Academy Award-winning actors? I mean, that's pretty crazy. I mean, that's unbelievable. But again, it was, you know, Matthew is an amazing writer and with a great sense of humor and, you know, and also a love of people. So it really translated in that one. That was a beautiful story. I mean, really beautiful, because my favorite part is still where the the family sits around with the little people family, which is um, Peter Dinklage's, no, who is it? No, it's um, Matthew McConaughey, who's the brother of Gary Oldman, who's a little person. And then we have um, Peter Dinklage as his best friend and all that. And they sit at the table with the parents who one is, I think, little and the other's tall. And father of um, Kate Beckinsale says, oh, there's something we have to say. There's something we have to say. And Kate Beckinsale says, Daddy, really? Do you have to? Thinking it's about like being a little person and, and how can my daughter do this? And instead, it's like, well, we thought we better tell you just to get it out in the open. We're Jewish. And that was just the funniest line I've ever heard. I mean, Matthew's just the funniest. He's just really good. He's just, he was ahead of everybody. You know, he was ahead of the whole Jerry Springer thing and, you know, like the whole vibe of putting people out into the public arena in movies that were what, you know, many people would consider not subject matter. Next up, we are going to hear from director and co-writer Mary Heron. I know that you were born in Ontario. How did you decide to get into the film business? I moved to England when I was 13, and I did a bit of drama at college, and that, but then I got very involved in college journalism. When I left college, I was, yeah, I was a journalist for a few years, about seven years, when I became more and more interested in film. And eventually I got a job in television in Britain, uh, working as a researcher in documentaries with the idea of of being a documentary filmmaker. I, I I think I had secret ambitions, too much of the stress to think I could do drama, but I did think I might write scripts, be a screenwriter, because I've been a journalist. So I was started writing scripts, actually, before, I, while I was still a journalist, then got a job in television. Your first feature film was I Shot Andy Warhol, which we know was based on a, a real-life event. I guess that kind of plays into your documentary background. 
when I was a journalist, I wrote about rock music, and I had interviewed all the members of the Velvet Underground, who, of course, were involved with Warhol. And then I had been the researcher on a documentary about the Velvet Underground and, and a documentary about Warhol. And when I was a journalist, I also had written a big piece for a British music paper about Warhol and his influence on pop culture. So I knew quite a lot about it. And, and I was working on this documentary about Warhol when Warhol died, actually. And it was through the process of working on that documentary, which I guess was 1986, that I got the idea for what became my first film. But actually, even before that, I had started writing a screenplay with a woman named Elizabeth LeCompte, who ran a company, a theater company called The Worcester Group, that I had worked on a film about them. And she lived with Willem Dafoe, and she had an idea that for, for a film she wanted to make about Jackson Pollock. So I had already, I was... Had, had been working with her on that screenplay. You know, I had I had the experience of working on a screenplay play with a director, and that was based on real life sources. I think it's just all you know, one step after another that leads you to. But it, originally, when I going to do actually I do Warhol, it was con- conceived as a kind of experimental documentary with with some dramatic elements, and it took a little while of exploration before it became a full fledged drama. Now, had you done much work with actors at that point? Not really. I'd done some. I'd done some little dramatic inserts in a couple of the documentaries I'd done because I'd done these kind of stylized documentaries. They weren't really classic documentaries, and some of them had dra- dramatic inserts. But my dad was a performer. You know, I'd grown up with the theater, and I did some acting in college. I don't know. Working with actors actually came pretty easily. That was probably the easiest thing to me. Also, it helped that I had written or co-written the script and done all the research, so I think the actors felt like I knew about their characters, and that that helped, I think. You worked with uh, Daniel Minahan on that one, correct? Yes, that's right. Lily Taylor, she is just phenomenal. How was she to work with? Oh, wonderful. Lily was incredible. And we started working together. It always takes a long time to get any feature film off the ground, and we started working together almost a year before or many months before we actually shot. And I would go and meet with her about once a week, and she would be going through scripts, and she'd have questions, and I would present her each week with a sort of package of research of things that might be relevant that she'd want to read. We really started talking to the character, and she does an immensely detailed process. She almost does a graph of the script so, so that she always knows ex- when shooting exactly where she, is, where she is with her character. She does very, very detailed notes on the script itself. I've always been fascinated by the different portrayals of Andy Warhol on screen because so many people come to it from so many different angles. What was it like working with Jared Harris on this, especially since you had so much knowledge of Warhol as a person? Jared is such a great actor, and he brings so much humanity to everything he does. One thing I really liked about Jared's performance was that he didn't judge Andy. And a lot of actors who came in to read for the role were kind of disapproving of Warhol and played him as being kind of very uh, bitchy or, or, you know, kind of, you know, kind of malicious. And he really wasn't, though. He, Jared caught the childlike quality in Warhol and the vulnerability, as well as the kind of, because um, obviously Warhol was very brilliant, uh, the cleverness and the manipulation. But he, he got the complexity of him. And I'm very curious how American Psycho came about for you. After I tried to work with Sundance, a friend of these producers, who had uh, Chris and Roberta Hanley, who had the auction on American Psycho, and had been trying to get a film made of it 
for some years uh, with the main producer, who was Edward Press or Pressman, but they had the the rights to it. And they called me up there um, because a friend of theirs had seen my movie and said, "Oh, you should get Mary Karen to try." I think what it was was they had heard that I was good at creating a world, which is sort of what American Psycho needed to to create a, a believable world. When they called me up, it's funny. I had read the book when it came out in London, and it was a great scandal there, as it was everywhere, I suppose. But it had such a terrible reputation. I started reading it, and I was amazed at how no one who had written about it or in all the outrage had said the book was very funny. What struck me was what a brilliant social satire it was, and it reminded me of early Evelyn Waugh, like uh, Vile Bodies, kind of that kind of English social satire. It's funny because I remember reading it on on the subway, people looking at me disprovingly because I was reading this terrible book. About 60 pages in or 70 pages in, there's a really horrific chapter of violence. And I had to stop reading it for about a month. But I had really been enjoying it. And I also loved something else that they criticized it for, which was the lists of brand names. But that reminded me of reading Warhol's diaries. There was something very calm and sort of zen-like about it. I enjoyed reading all the lists. I liked Brett writing a lot. And so I, 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 I pushed through it. I, I, really, I admired the novel. I thought it was very experimental and very radical. But I had no thought of making this a movie. Maybe five years later when they called me up about it, what occurred to me then, and practically the first thought was, oh, you know, now's the time you can really make a movie about the 80s because enough time has passed. And I was, I felt there was a lot of great satire there. And I said, I remember saying, actually, that Ed, first, first, the Hamlet called me up and I said, okay, let me look at, they had a script. I said, well, I'll look at it, but I read it and thought, oh, this is interesting, but I need to write my own. And then Ed Preston called me up and I said, I don't know if you can make a movie out of this book, but I will try if you will pay me to write a script. And then I had been working on a different project with Guinevere Turner, who was a friend of mine, and I thought, oh, you know, Gwyn is a great writer and it would really be good to, I think I did the initial sort of a breakdown, I, the initial pass. Of this initial breakdown, I started working on my own basically, and then I thought, oh, you know, I need, I, I really want to collaborate with someone, and it'd be great to work on with another woman, but a woman like Gwen, who um, is kind of fearless and isn't worried about political correctness, I would say, because you know, I had just done a film about Valerie Solanas that was a sympathetic film, but this very radical feminist, and Gwen had just done Go Fish, which was a the first really successful lesbian comedy. So I think we felt like nobody can. Uh, accused us of not being feminist enough or not being having a feminine female point of view. So I think we went into it kind of well with the feeling we you know we know what we're doing and you know it's the way it was challenging, but we just felt like you know we'll come at us if, if you don't like it. Don't don't accuse us of being sexist. So we I felt like when I were good people to take this on. We we didn't need to be as scared as a male director would have been. You know, and what we found in it. And that is, I think, not openly gay now. But for us, for us, to me, I thought what, what was most brilliant in American Psycho, apart from the sort of satire in the 80s, 80s sort of ruthlessness and consumption, was what a brilliant satire was on and, and analysis it was of male behavior. It was really an attack on men and hilariously sort of parodying in a way. And, and then he caught... It was something that Valerie Solanas had said in, in her Scum Manifesto that, that really match your behaviors and groups of men actually behave like teenage girls. 
with their vanity and their competitiveness and their and their social anxiety. And I thought that he caught that brilliantly. So, so you know, that's what we how we launched into it. How did the script kind of evolve from where you started to where you ended up? We decided we needed to go away, so we we went off to, for vacation in Mexico for about ten days in a place by the beach, and we we just went and we worked every day, and we went through the book and just basically wrote in all our favorite scenes. We made a list of all our favorite, and we just wrote them onto the computer. And after that, the question was how to make a structure out of it, of those favorite scenes. And then, and then it's a process always of just refining and refining and redoing and reordering. And, and that's something I, I enjoy doing, actually, is structure. I had one great idea, I felt, which I will claim. I remember that summer when I was just starting to work on it. And I just remember where I, I had an idea. Somebody had this idea that the chapters in the book, there are three chapters of music criticism. Julie Lewis, Phil Collins, and Whitney Houston. And I thought, what if every time he's about to kill somebody, he starts talking about music, and he's talking about this very bland kind of commercial pop music, but with great soul and sincerity and passion, the way that he does, you know, in the book, which is, there's this chapter, it's like a brilliant parody of music criticism, of rock writing. Um, And, but I said, so if you have him do that, the first time with Paul Al, uh, Paul, Alan, or actually in the book, it's Paul, I can't remember what name, it's Paul Owen, and he, he talks about Hugh Lewis and then he kills him. Then every time Aitman starts talking about music, you're going to think he's going to kill somebody. For the second time, when he's doing uh, Phil Collins, and everyone's going to be, you know, on the edge of their seat because they, they're waiting for something terrible to happen. So uh, that was, yeah, that was my big, big structural idea to have these three big set, you know, set pieces. I had read once, and please Correct me if I'm wrong. I'd read at one point, um, Brett Easton Ellis actually took a stab at, oh, sorry, stab at doing the script adaptation himself. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, yeah, he had. I, yes, and actually I read it. And it was funny. I mean, I kind of liked it. It ended, uh, it ended with Bateman tap dancing and then Broadway, I think. I mean, it was funny. But uh, to me, I liked it. But I mean, I, you know, it, it wasn't the way I would have done it. So I just felt like I just need to. There were several different scripts. Three, I think it was three different scripts. Cronenberg had a script as well. Snyder, I think. Or whoever wrote Dead Ringers wrote it. And I just thought, this just isn't how I have to, uh, you know, none of them, I just have to do my own version. And, and none of them I thought was funny. You know, I really wanted it to be, I was more interested in the satire than in the violence. But I was wanting the satire and the violence, but, and I, I remember saying this to Gwen, and we agreeing on this, that at one point, that it's not going to be that, but at one point it just has to get really violent, which is uh, the scene where the two robots, one of Guinevere plays, one of them is murdered on the bathroom floor, you know, where he kills the two women. And it's like, you know, you're going to hold off and hold off and hold off, but at one point, bang, you have to be afraid to go there. I didn't want to do the film as an exploration of violence. One of the things that I really uh, found very compelling in the book was the way it, it, it has very abrupt shifts from a, a scene that is pure social comedy into a scene that is extremely violent and frightening, and there's really no transition. You're just going bang, bang, one to the other, and, and, and which keeps you just in this sort of state. Uh, and I wanted to reflect that aspect of the book in the film. How does one go about building a cast for a film like this? I don't know, a lot of people wanted to be in it, actually. Uh, um, I mean, Christian really, really wanted to do it, and, and he wasn't well-known then, so it was a big battle. It was a long and terrible battle to test him. A lot of hot young actors wanted to do it, I, I would say. But it was more complicated with the room. But actually, Chloe Sevigny signed on very early, um, and 
I think the big surprise, and I was very fortunate, was that Reese Witherspoon signed on to do it. Because that was a role that a lot of people turned down. I needed so I needed somebody who was a name in that role, and I thought that was very fearless of her. And she saw it as a kind of feminist thing. She had her own take on the book, or on the story that it that she enjoyed. That there was something empowering about it in its, I guess, in its exposure. And then, but she was she she really went for it. She was fine with it. Uh, Willem Dafoe was I I was a friend and I, who I knew and. So he came on early, and he liked he liked the part. He liked the script. So so that was it was more like actually the real battle of casting. Not getting people to be in it. It was uh, the the battle to cast Christian because he wasn't famous. Uh, and at one point, Leonardo DiCaprio decided he wanted to play the role. Someone had given him the script, passed passed a copy to him, and he was just coming off Titanic. And of course, the producers were very excited. And I said, No, you, we we just. I, we can't. I, I mean, I can't go along with that because, you know, for several reasons, I thought he was wrong for it. Oh, you know, great actor, but not the right type. His celebrity after Titanic would be just a millstone around the film because he had this teenage fan base and it would attract terrible publicity and kind of really hamper us. And also that I felt like casting a big star in a way, I, I felt like I could only make this film work if I had total control over the tone. And I felt like if you got a big star, they would want to make the character more sympathetic, and they'd want to rewrite the script, which indeed was what happened. So for a while, I said, no, I would not meet with Leonardo, because I was afraid that I would get talked into it. So I just said, no, I think you should cast Christian. So they, they fired me from the movie. For a few months, three or four months, uh, Leonardo was attached, and Oliver Stone was going to do the film, and he had a reading in fact, in his offices with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and I think Cameron Diaz and uh, Jared Leto, who still played Paul Allen. He was in that reading. But I think that after that, that they were trying to make it more, to change the script, make it more of a Jekyll and Hyde story. And, uh, and that just didn't, uh, they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't find a way to do that, I guess. They could, they couldn't make a story resolution. For whatever reason, I'm not, I'm not that aspect, I don't know. They wanted to make the character, you know, more Jekyll and Hyde. That means to give him both a, a sympathetic and an unsympathetic side, I think. Whereas my take on that was always, no, this is a monster, and we're not going to give him justification. We're not going to show him uh, with a good and bad side. He's he's all of a piece. He's a deformed human being. And we're not going to show his tragic childhood or anything else, you know, that you might try and justify either because there's no justification. For what he's done, he's also actually he's in many ways he's he's a symbol. He's like the 1980s mad consumer society. He's like Big Flash, you know, he's the embodiment of it. The anxiety and the and the and the you know and the ruthlessness and the and the terror of and the obsession with perfect surfaces, hiding this terror, you know, all the anxiety and madness and violence. So anyway, that was how I saw it, and and I think they were trying to make a more traditional story which would be Jekyll and Hyde, like someone who has fits of madness but is not a bad person or is capable of goodness, which didn't interest me. <laughs> but anyway, I was part of that process I'm trying to rewrite script. I just had a feeling that that would be on the cards if, if they got a big movie star. So anyway, they, that somehow they couldn't come to terms, and uh, DiCaprio went off to do a different movie, to do The Beach. And I knew, actually, when I heard he was going to do The Beach, that he wouldn't do American Psycho because he wasn't going to do two indie movies in a row. So eventually, to my amazement, though, they, I, I, I had really come to terms with having lost the film. I mean, it was very, very upsetting. 
and so devastating. But I just got married. I was, you know, I had a baby. You know, I was, I had other things in my life, and I, I, I had sort of made peace with it. And one day I came home, and it was a call from my agent, and said, you know, are you sitting? You better sit down. And they, and they said that they were offering me the film back, which is just I thought they were calling me to say they were, they had worked out compensation for me for firing me. But no, it was, uh, it was to give me the film back, which was great. And, you know, the rest, rest was history. Um, and they didn't want to cast Christian, but they managed to, they said, you can't even mention Christian Bale. But, you know, we went through, I did, I did a short list of people I would cast with, who I was pretty sure would not do the role. And, you know, we sort of deliberately <laughs> targeted people I thought wouldn't do it. And, and eventually they, they kind of, after, you know, five or six people said no, they, they accepted it. And, uh, and then Christian, Christian did it and became, you know, his extraordinary performance. Yeah, I can't really imagine anybody else in that role. He just embodies it so perfectly. Yes, and he had a great sense of humor about it. I mean, you know, you needed an act. And he also, you also need, this is one of my arguments about Leonardo DiCaprio, who I felt, apart from anything else, you had to find who looked right in a, in a kind of, not that Leo wasn't handsome, but he was handsome in a more pretty way, in a more unusual way. And Christian's handsome in a kind of very GQ way, like a male model way. And, and, and you, and you could surround him with people who look more handsome in a similar way, you know, kind of chiseled featured, dark haired guys, you know, uh, Josh Lucas or, you know, Justin Thoreau. You could, you could kind of have a group of Bill Sage as one of his friends, you know, that they're all kind of handsome, chiseled looking guys who, who, so you, you had to, you had to make that whole thing of, um, mistaken identification makes sense, that they're all kind of dress-alike and somewhat look-alike. It's kind of an important aspect of it. You talked about how the book was kind of notorious when you were reading it, and it kept that reputation for a long time. Were there any problems as far as uh, getting this movie made and or getting rights for things, like even the music? The music cost a lot of money. I was I, I, very fortunate that we, we were able to get the rights to those songs, but they did charge a great deal of money for them. What was really funny was that we couldn't get product placement. Everybody said no. There's lots of places in the script that it would have been so good if we could have said, um, there's a scene where, where uh, he's in bed with the two prostitutes and he says, don't touch the Rolex. But we couldn't say Rolex, so he says, don't touch the watch. But it's like, oh, it would be better if we could say Rolex. There's uh, a part where he's got the suitcase or he's got a body in the suitcase. Oh, you know, is that comedy garden law? We couldn't use comedy garden So there was just a lot of enormous number of brand names. Like even in, in the scene his bathroom cabinet couldn't have anything well known there because nobody would give us permission. Yeah, that is so Patrick Bateman. I mean, just like you were saying, those lists of products and just name dropping every everything and that and the the crazy food it just seems like he's always going out to restaurants in the 80s in that period of the 80s i was working in television british television on these on documentaries and we would we would go to new york for filming trips and stay in hotels and that's when i would i'd stay in hotels and i would go out to dinner with people and so i actually had experience of going to fancy restaurants because you know so it's funny so i've seen it enough of uh mid-80s new york to be able to satirize and i think what was your uh, relationship like with Andre Sakula? When I met with Andre, sorry, um, I, w- I was trying to find the right photographer, and my husband suggested, well, what about Andre Sakula, who shot Pulp Fiction? And 
it was a great suggestion. Andre is I, is a DP in the a Polish DP in the tradition of Polanski that he he shoots in you know, a wide angle, wide lenses. Uh, he loves deep focus. He shoots everything, which is true of Pulp Fiction, which also is black comedy in some ways, although obviously of a very different kind. But but there was enough relationship, um, and so the, the people who I was thinking about as visual references, which would be Polanski, Hitchcock, Kubrick, are, are all sort of references that, that Andre's work, you know, fit in with. We both wanted it to be tremendously crisp. And I said to him, I think it should look like a very beautiful commercial, but because, in sense of having perfect surfaces. But because he has this kind of Polanski element, he was able to create something unsettling in the, in the beauty, which was also true the production design too. He shot these rooms, because he used wide angle, just he was able to really feature the rooms in the setting, you know, as part of every shot. And it was amazing, you know, lighting and everything. And we had banks of lights that took forever. you know, we wanted, he wanted to get out. We couldn't see anything. It was a really very crisp image. The apartments, the look of those rooms, just remarkable. I mean, uh, Patrick Bateman's apartment is incredible. Yes. And Vivian Ponte, who designed was a very old friend of mine, who was a friend of mine from London, actually. And he had worked in the art world, but then he, he came and did his first film job, actually, on I Shine to Warhol. He worked in the art department, and then he became a sort of successful designer. And so, yes, he did an amazing, he had an amazing eye for that. He was able to, I just want a few references. I, I said I wanted, in terms of Patrick Bateman's apartment, I said, no personal objects. No personal photographs, no family, no family photographs, nothing. No, as if, you know, no one at home. It should look like it's just a page out of a, a, a interior design magazine. As if, as if you, this is the apartment of someone who has no interior life. And then I, the other, other thing I said was I want a kitchen to look like a morgue. So I want it like metal, you know, stainless steel. When you have all of these young, good looking male actors all, uh, hanging out together, working together, is there any sort of one-upmanship or macho bullshit that you have to put up with? No, I think they're all delightful. Um, Christian kind of kept himself more because, you know, he was in every scene, and I think he tends to do that anyway, probably, but he, he I mean, I, I was very friendly with him, you know, we talked a lot before shooting, but during shooting, I didn't really see if he was kind of more kept himself. I think he was just, he did this big exercise regime, and he had so much work to, to do. Um, but on set, there was a uh, good feeling, actually. I, no, no, I think they were very supportive. The guys were very supportive, I found. And, and they all, I think they all, it was good fun. You know, I didn't, it's funny. No, often, you know, it's like often when you're doing something violent or that involves, but you, that in a way off screen, there isn't that, you know, because you kind of get all this, get it all out. It is amazing to watch, especially today, and see that everybody is somebody that, to the some of the smallest roles you're looking at, it's like, oh wow, you know, I I recognize so many of these people today. Even when I didn't necessarily know who, say, Josh Lucas was when I saw it originally, and now it's like, oh wow, you know, they they really, it's amazing how many known faces there are in this film. Yes, I think that was his first big movie part. I think because I've seen him on stage. And Justin, who I think he was doing Mulholland Drive at the same time around that same year, but he he hadn't yet, you know, become well known. Matt Ross, who uh, is in Silicon Valley, he was a director himself, famous director, and actually did Captain Fantastic. And Bill Sage is a 
great character actor. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of people. Um, Kara Seymour, who plays Christy the Prostitute, who's such a great actress. Yeah, there's a, a lot of wonderful people in that. I was, I was fortunate. How did they decide to market the film when it was ready to come out? I'm not really part of that. I remember having an argument with him about the trailer. I was afraid the trailer was too exploitative. I think, I don't know, they did a good job, whatever they did. I think they, you'd have to ask someone else about that because I wasn't, I'm not really part of those discussions. Um, I just delivered the movie. But one thing that they did, which was actually clever, um, was to market it as, a, as more as a conventional horror movie. The bad aspect of that is that when people realize it's not a conventional horror movie, then they're kind of disappointed. But they managed, they managed, you know, they released it well. They certainly, you know, they made them money back, I think. But, it did fine. It didn't do great. It did better in, in, in international. I remember getting a call about that. Someone telling me that it had actually done well internationally. And then really, its whole great reputation didn't happen for years. Because I remember thinking, you know, Christian's given a brilliant performance here. Uh, he should get at least like a, you know, Independent Spirit Award nominated. You know, someone should not, you know, nominate him for something. But you didn't get a single nomination, in, in, even in the kind of indie film categories. And it didn't, I don't think it made the film made a single best, a best ten list of any of the critics, which is really funny now because I'm constantly asked about it, and it's constantly being referenced. And it's funny because at the time, it really took, wasn't for about another five years that it became this thing, and I don't really know how it happened. Can I ask you how The Notorious Betty Page came about? I was actually working on that very early on before I made Archie Warhol. A friend of mine, I was working on a TV show briefly, my one um, job on a uh, network kind of magazine show, which was for Fox, a brief, this one called Front Page, which was a brief attempt. I was hired by them after I'd done work on a show on the, on the, for the um, BBC. And Dan Minahan, Dan Minahan, who was my best friend, and he worked on uh, this BBC show with me, and we were both hired to go to LA and work on this show for Fox. And I, while there, we made a friend of a young researcher in his first TV job, who was a guy called Sam Green. Sam Green became is now very, very no, well known as a documentary maker. He did The Weather Underground and got nom- you know nominated for an Oscar, and he's a great, great documentary maker. Anyway, he was like this young guy. And one day, Sam left on my desk these magazines they called the Betty Pages and, and he with a note saying, I think you should do a uh, piece about Betty Page. And I was like, oh, yeah. and I opened these magazines up and they were hilarious because they had this Betty Page, you know, in her 1950s, you know, sexy bondage gear, you know, in these very weird domestic interiors with like sofas and couches and like suburban lamps and stuff and painting. It's, this is hilarious. It's so great. It's so strange. Um, and so I got very intrigued and I read about her and Sam and I tried to persuade the show to do a piece about Betty, but they didn't. They said, well, if you can't get her to be interviewed, we're not interested. So then I, I, I decided to try and do it as a short film for Channel 4. It went through many incarnations. It's going to be a short film for 20, Channel 4. Uh, and then Guinevere was originally going to be Betty because she looked quite a lot like her. And we were doing that, and then we, um, it was going to be a 20 minute film, and then we, we, and then there was another, another thing, and there was some other TV outlet that was going to be like an hour. And then we just decided to make it into a movie. Uh, it took many years. It was like, I think Killer Folks, it was their, almost their, it was their second longest project in development, because I think it was in development from 94 into 2005 when we finally made it. 
I'm curious though how uh, Gretchen Maul approached the character because she manages to do she's unrecognizable quite a bit at the time. Yes, I knew Gretchen because Gretchen was originally going to be an American Psycho. She was going to play the part that Samantha Mathis played, um, and she had to drop out. And I cast her, and she had to drop out because um, she was making a film with Paul Schrader, uh, and the schedule didn't work. But it never occurred to me to cast this. She's this rather sort of slender, Nordic-looking blonde. And so when my casting director, who I always work with, Carrie Barden, she just said, oh, no. you know. But he said, well, just bring her in. Just have her come in and read. So I was like, sure. And she came. And we had just like a hundred girls come in in sort of sexy black, you know, black wigs and leather and all this. And it was just so wrong, really. And then Gretchen came in, and she, she didn't have a black blank. She just came in in her blonde shelf and wasn't all made up. But she was so naturally, she had this effortless sort of sexiness, but also just sort of innocence and, and a ladylike 1950s quality. And, and just this sort of buoyancy. She was just so perfect. And really after that, I never I never thought of anyone else. It was a bit of a battle to capture as well, because people didn't have trouble persuading HBO to see her as Betty, but there's usually a casting battle of some kind or another on a bump for me anyway. Well, it was really nice to see you working again with Lily Taylor and Jared Harris on that as well. Yes, yes. They were both fabulous. Yes. That was very, very fun. She's such a great comedian. I, I, I wish that more people, that she got cast in comedy more because she's a fantastic commentator. I know John Kill did the score for American Psycho and I shot Andy Warhol, and I imagine you had met him when you were doing your research on um, The Velvet Underground. I knew him forever. I know John since the night seventy six. I knew him from the CBGB's still punk days. I started with him then, yeah. Yeah. So I'd known him forever. Oh wow. What was he like to work with in a professional capacity? The first film was very um there was much less music, so it was sort of you know, it was on a smaller scale. Um but I was just that for the first time I just go to his house and he'd play a few things and uh, you know, it's funny because he, it's so interesting that he'd known Warhol, he'd known that world. But it, it's funny because Lou Reed did not want to be part of it and would not license any of the, the, you know, give permission for any of the underground music to be used. So, but I felt like if I had John writing the score that I still had, <laughs> the Velvet Underground was still part of the movie. I was thinking my favorite scene, actually, in American Psycho is the scene with the two prostitutes when they're having drinks and and he he's saying, you know, do you, you know, do I know what I do? And 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 uh, character says, no, not really. And he says, well, I work at Pearson Pearson. And he's trying to sort of um, show off for them. And it keeps going wrong, you know. He sort of wants them to be perfect. It's a question I had this conversation that um, one of the things that happens with Bateman is that he he wants them to be perfect, but it keeps going wrong. And so then, you know, like the girl's not blonde enough and or she just puts her drink down without a coat. You know, something happens. It always makes it go wrong and it's always their fault. And terrible violence and fears. But I just thought that, that for me, like visually and comically, and everything, that is the best. That's my favorite scene. I, I love the way it's shot with we have one girl dancing and, and one girl behind, you know, just the perspective of it. It's, you know, it's because he's saying, you know, why don't you dance a little? And, and she's dancing. So it's so sort of strange and awkward because she doesn't want to do it. And, and I'm, I think, I think I'm particularly proud of this scene because 
there are very few sort of real scenes in movies that realistically present what it's like to be a call girl or a prostitute. And that it's a job and and it's not sexually exciting. And it's a little unnerving, especially with a freaky guy like this. And so I wanted the extreme awkwardness and this weird thing that he's acting as if it's a date, adult, you know, and yet it's, you know, they're prostitutes and it's very, very weird. And, and then he starts talking about Phil Collins. So I, personally, I think that's my favorite. I know it's, it, it's, it's not everyone else's, but I just thought I would say that. Have you ever seen the parody video that the actor, um, Miles Teller did of that? That one's very good. My favorite parody video of American Psycho is the one that the Dutch Jeans Company did, the hipster one. Oh my God! Yeah, with the 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 different types of denim. It's genius. So to me, that's the. I mean, they're all good, and the mouthfeller one is great, but I think the Dutch jeans one is just genius. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that one because my mind went to the Miles Teller one, and then to, of course, Weird Al and and uh, Huey Lewis. Yes, and they're all great, but if I had to pick one, uh, it would be Dutch Dutch denim. Last but not least, we are going to hear from co-writer and actress Guinevere Turner. You were born in Boston. Did you grow up over in New England? Uh, not really. I grew up in a thing called the Lyman family, which is a, you know, let's face it, it's a cult. And um, you can Google them and see that they, they, their Wikipedia page certainly doesn't call them that. But, you know, I grew up homeschooled with a, you know, um, you know, uh, anyway, I grew up on compounds. And one of those compounds was in Boston. And that's the one I was born into. But uh, I also grew up in Martha's Vineyard and in Kansas and here in L.A., and in uh, New York and in San Francisco, which is where all their compounds were when I was a kid. Well, I was 12 and uh, my mother uh, escaped. So uh, she took me with her. So uh, so then I started living in the real world and as a 12-year-old, which, you know, if you think it's awkward coming out of a cult, try coming out of a cult and going into seventh grade where life is already so awkward and having having it be 1979 and Everybody has feathered hair and Calvin Klein jeans, and I have, like, hair down to my ass and, like, velour bell-bottoms that I made myself, which, by the way, sounds super cool right now, but at the time, I really knew that I stood out. How did you decide that you wanted to go into the entertainment business? I didn't. I was I went to, my, to Sarah Lawrence College, where I got a degree in being awesome, which is to say... I got a degree, uh, a bachelor's degree in uh, in liberal arts degree. So it's the most expensive, you know, way to be really uh, interesting to talk to at a cocktail party. It was an amazing, it was an amazing, amazing education. But in, when I graduated in 1990, I didn't, I didn't know there was nothing to do with it. I studied fiction writing mostly. So I, as I was plotting the great American novel, uh, my girlfriend at the time had just graduated from film school, and then we just sort of were remarking on the the ways that there were no lesbian films that we had ever seen that represented our lives, which is to say just regular old people, not like coming out stories or isolation stories or suicide stories, but just like stupid girlfriend stories. And we said, so we made my film go fish and I had never read a screenplay, much less written one. In fact, if you had asked me probably in college about movies, it probably, it probably had never occurred to me that a screenplay was a thing. Do you know what I mean? I mean, not that I didn't love movies, but I never really thought about all the steps and all the different people and talent and skill sets it takes to make a movie. But then, so we wrote the screenplay, me and the director, Rose Troche, and then the movie became the movie, and then the movie went to Sundance, and then it was, you know, okay, now I guess this is what I do. 
because then people wanted me to act in their films and eventually wanted me to write more films. And that was 1994 and cut to 98 when I met Mary Heron. No, 97, 96, I think 96, I met Mary and we started working on uh, our film, The Notorious Betty Page, and then took a break and did American Psycho. And so that from the time that I started thinking like, let's make a movie, which was 1992 to 2000 when American Psycho came out, a lot happened and I learned a lot. Did you say you were going out with Rose when you were making Go Fish? Yes, we were girlfriends until we weren't in the middle of making the movie, which was um, a huge challenge for a lot of reasons, obviously. But we were producing it. She was directing it. We wrote it. I was starring in it. Um, but but weirdly, the biggest problem on the day-to-day was that we lived in the same apartment and she moved out. But since we were shooting on weekends, um, a lot of her belongings were a continuity issue. So she couldn't take a lot of her stuff. So it was just uh, it was just uh, funny. Um, she had to leave all, a lot of her shit in the apartment that was then only mine for a year. Like books, like there's a whole bookshop that would just shoot. Just like I just really want that fucking book. I'm like, it's in the shop, Rose. It's in that thing that we shot in March. Like you have to leave it. Like don't fuck with this stuff because we don't have a continuity person. That's a lie. Actually, I didn't even know what a continuity person was, but I was that person. <laughs> the stress of making an independent film because it was truly independent, and then breaking yeah. up on top of it, or even to just to, to do it with somebody that you're going out with has got to be so terrible. Oh my gosh. I mean, and you, you know, we were throwing things at each other when we were writing it. So, you know, it was like, <laughs> by the time we got to, and the best thing is though, we're both, and we're both, we're really very dear friends. We're like family still. So I can say anything I want without it being in mean spirited. But yeah, I just remember like at one point she said, <laughs> We, people kept saying to us, because everybody knew we broke up, we were, you know, we had a close-knit group of friends, and everyone had worked on the movie, this was Chicago, this was 1991, 92, and um, she said, people kept saying to us, so whatever happened to that movie, and that would just like, oh, anyone who's ever worked really long and hard on something, you're just like, I'm still making it, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so then, so then at some point, we just looked at each other, and we were really not getting along, and we're like, well, are we still making this movie? And we're both just like, oh, we're making this movie. Like, we almost finished the movie just to fight each other and to prove a point, but whatever worked. And, I mean, lucky for us, the movie did became so much more than we ever could have dreamed um, in terms of, you know, publicity and world travel and theatrical release and Sundance and all of that sort of forced us to um, just, we, we were just together so much for that the whole year after the film came out that we, I'm glad we were because it was that we got ourselves into so many situations that it was only the two of us being like, what is happening? Oh my God. Like, can you believe this? By the end of that, we were friends again. So that, that was good. 94 was the golden period of independent films in the U S I mean, you're talking clerks and Pulp Fiction and so many great things coming out all at the same time. I remember go fish distinctly when you guys played Sundance and just the, the news coming out of Sundance. Oh my God, you have to see this film. Yeah, it was really exciting. It's funny cause I'm friends uh, now, good friends with some of the programmers who were there then Trevor Groff and John Cooper. And they said they were always, they were really surprised because we weren't, we never like went up to them and thanked them or made a point of knowing them. And then I said to them, like, I truly didn't understand the difference between a programmer and a juror. Like, I just didn't understand how any of it worked. I was just like, what? I mean, the year before when we were making the film, Rose had showed me a copy of Entertainment Weekly, also a magazine I'd never seen before, and said, um, showed me pictures of people at Sundance and was like, this is going to be us next year. And I'm like, what is that? She's like, it's a Sundance film festival. And I literally said, what's a film festival? I was in my own little Sarah Lawrence, like, I'm going to be a fiction writer bubble. I just, my world was just all about writers, you know, prose, uh, prose writers, fiction writers. So I was, it was all an education for me. And uh, 
it was a it was a big deal. And then you know we became friends with Kevin and Scott because they were there with clerks and. It was, you know, it was a life-altering 10 days of my life, for sure. How did the whole uh, Betty Page project come about? I was in London doing press with Rose for Go Fish. And um, they put us, they often assumed that we were a couple, which was hilarious because we were the opposite of that. <laughs> and so they, we often got put in the same room. And so we got, they put us in a tiny room at the Groucho Club. And I was like, this is how it's going to go, Rose. I'm going to get up really early. I'm going to go downstairs and have breakfast. And you're going to get dressed. And then you're going to leave and you're going to let me get dressed. She was like, okay. So I went downstairs all in a huff. And uh, Christine Vashon, the producer of our film, was there talking to Mary Heron about her first film, uh, I Shot Andy Warhol. And so I just was introduced to Mary. And Mary said to me, do you know you look a lot like Betty Page? And I, it seems like a theme in my young days, was like, who's Betty Page? <laughs> and um, she told me. And then Mary and I just hit it off immediately. And we started writing Betty Page because we were all part of the same sort of like independent film world in New York at the time. So um, you know, Mary and I are now just finishing a fourth script together and she's going to direct my next screenplay um, in next spring. I know I always tell students and um, people that I mentor, you know, relationships come and go, but if you find someone you can collaborate with, that's the one to hold on to. <laughs> Were you familiar with American Psycho before the project came up? Nope. <laughs> Would you have guessed? Mary, of course, then came to me because, you know, after Warhol came out, you know how the industry works. It's like, you did a thing about a crazy person. Here's another thing about a crazy person. You'll be good at it. And so she said, she said, they, they want me to do this adaptation of this book. Have you read this book? And I was like, no, what is that? She's like, oh my God, it was a huge, big deal, like feminist uproar when it came out. She said, and she knows me well, knew me well at that point and said, you're going to hate me for making you read this book, but I think there's a really good movie in here. So I was like, okay. So I read the book and I was like, yes, I hate you. And I hate Brady Tanellis, but I also see that there can be a really good movie in here. So um, we had to put Betty Page on hold and uh, we just started, we just dug into American Psycho and just spent a few years doing that much to, to our great success, well, wonderfully. So between the time that we started writing Betty Page and the time that we were standing at the premiere of Betty Page was 10 years. But American Psycho was in the middle, so it wasn't as long as it sounds. How did you guys decide to go about breaking down the novel for an adaptation? And I take it this is your first adaptation that you'd ever done. Yes, it was. Um, Mary comes from a world of journalism and had made her first film, which was, you know, already a biopic of Valerie Solanas, basically, who shot Andy Warhol. So she had way more experience in sort of dealing with raw materials. We just decided together first, we don't want this movie to be, to have all of this intense, explicit violence. Like, that would be such a different movie if you really tried to do, a, you know, go as deep and as dark as Brett Ellis goes. Um, but we saw, we loved the humor in it. And we loved the kind of underlying sort of, you know, um, subversive feminism in it. Even uh, years later, Brett said he thought he was writing a feminist book. <laughs> and, he, and, and when, you know, the world came after him, the world of feminists and said, you're an asshole and we're going to ban your book and, you know, cut you down. He was really, his feelings were hurt. <laughs> um, so we said, well, let's, let's just, we went away to a place in Mexico together for a couple of weeks and we just, said, let's read this book to each other. Let's just make a list of scenes that we know we want in the movie. And so then we just had a pile of scenes. And then we're like, okay, now how can we make this coherent? And we had actually actors come down and a couple actor friends come down and just hang out just for a couple of days and read scenes that we had written and just sort of see how they sounded and if they were movie-ish enough or if they still sounded like the book. I mean, that's sort of one of the biggest struggles. Like, can you still hear the book? Um, in a, you know, in, in the negative way that you can still hear a book. Like, that just sounds like a literary thing, not a, a cinematic thing. And then we just built from there. And we, you know, one of our biggest hurdles was that we 
the, one of our biggest hurdles was that we had to, we loved all of his monologues about music, but in the book, those are just straight, like they read like record reviews. There's no plot. There's no, there's just, just it's just an opinion about an artist and a record. And, but we're, but they're so hilariously written and there's so much a part of who the character is that we just were stumped for a long time. How do we do this? How do we get this in the movie? And then we thought, oh, we know. Well, every time he starts talking about this, he's going to kill someone. And so by the time, the third time, I think it's actually the, by the time he's talking to the character that I play in the movie about Whitney Houston, you, the audience should be like, oh no, he, he, this person's going to die. He's talking about music. He'll take an ax to your head. Like just be, and be nervous now. That was one of our biggest hurdles, and that was our process. And it was a really difficult process because even after a, a draft and giving it to executives at Lionsgate and different people in our lives, people would say, well, well, the character's just really not sympathetic, to which we would say, okay, um, I really don't know what to do with that because he's a serial killer and an asshole and a dork. <laughs> like, I don't know where we're going to find, like, are we supposed to feel for this guy? Like this is not, and it's also, it's not, not a literal movie. Like it is, there is a hyper reality to it. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it operates a, as a satire and B as a kind of parable in a way, is this very sort of basic notion of, of your main character having to be sympathetic was to us, like we're, we're operating on a different level here. Like stay with us. And what's funny is that I feel like I have experienced many, um, uh, mostly dudes, say to me like wow you wrote that movie man i am patrick bateman i'm like you're what like (laughs) was that an aspirational person i mean yes he has really nice suits and a kick-ass bod but you know he's a serial killer and he's not a cool serial killer you are coming at movies from this more literary background how did you kind of train yourself to get that ear to hear what's movie-ish versus literary a lot of it had to do with the fact that i was also an actor at the time. And so I was reading tons and tons of scripts. It's one of the best educations you can have as a writer. If your eyeball is trained that way and your brain is to just know, see what works on the page. And so it was reading hundreds and hundreds of scripts. I mean, that said, you know, I auditioned for Ally McBeal. I read that script and I was like, huh, yeah, I'll audition for this. This is never going to be a show. <laughs> Nine seasons later, I was wrong. So I wasn't right about scripts, but, um, I trained myself that way and also from, you know, getting notes and learning how to hear notes. You know, notes can be good and notes can be bad, but but hearing other people's response to your work and honing your brain to understand where they're coming from also just makes you, it just makes you better. I mean, really just um, trial by fire. And believe me, in between all of the good scripts that I've written that have become movies have been some, let's just say mediocre to poor and or failed scripts, you know, trial and error as well. Was there ever any question about whether you're going to have first-person narration in the film or not? Oh, yeah. We we struggled with that a lot because we both, we laughed because we continue to have voiceover in our movies, but we continue to fight it. Because we always said, like, it's the it's the last gasp tool of a screenwriter to, to use voiceover. But in this case, his voice, you know, the novel is written in first person and his his perspective and his style of talking is so good and so specific that we just, we broke down and said, we get, there's no other way to do this. He can't, so much of what he says in the book, he doesn't say to anyone. And so we, um, we gave in, but we fought it for at least a a draft or two. And then, you know, some of his, some of the voiceover that we have in there, you know, specifically his morning skin routine and his business card, the inner monologue, 
those are some of the best moments in the movie. So, you know, we made the right choice, but we, we tried hard not to, for some reason, I, we, we were just laughing at ourselves recently because we were like, fuck it, just, let's just use voiceover. Like, it's fine. It's okay. Sometimes it makes sense. I don't know. I don't know what, in us what got us so against it. But still, when I teach, I, I still say like, fight voiceover until the last minute. <laughs> just make sure that you don't have anything else in your toolbox. Or, you know, I mean, there was a point at the, in the whole process where the movie got taken away from us and Oliver Stone was going to direct it and Leonardo DiCaprio was going to star in it. And I always, we laugh together, actually, like, what would that movie be and how radically different? Right. I could almost see it being like a sequel to Wall Street at that point. Yeah. And something like that. But like, I also think that Oliver Stone would have, in the way that we tried to work around the really uh, gory, explicit violence, I think he would have dove in and really tried to embrace it. And that that alone would make it, you know, I, I think really a horror movie rather than living in the in the satirical place. Although I have to say, I was at a screening for it maybe two years ago. And this woman, you know, I was at a cocktail reception before and she was like, oh, no, I can't come to the screening. I, I would I could never see a movie like that. And I was like, no, you know, people think it's a scary movie, but it's really it's not. It's really funny. And it's not, you know, it's not super violent. And then I'm sitting with her in the screening and I'm like, watching it and watching him stomp on a dog and stab a homeless man. And I'm like, I may have lost perspective on this movie. Because <laughs> she's looking at me like, you're an asshole. Like, why did you make me watch this movie? It's scary and you're crazy. I know that you were on set. Obviously, you had to be since you were acting in the movie. What was your kind of day-to-day working on the movie? I wasn't on the set for the whole time. I had like a weird thing about being on sets where I don't have a clear job. I know from being an actor or a director on a set that when people are just visiting the set, you know, it, it, I'm sort of like, excuse me, like I'm, I'm working, like don't, don't just be in the way. So I was only there for, you know, a little bit of time before and after I was actually working on camera. But, you know, the thing is with Mary that she, she and I, she's, I'm such a lucky writer in this way that, she, you know, she's a gen, she genuinely treats me like a collaborator in a way that a lot of writers don't get treated. So I was part of casting and I was part of, you know, she was sending me photos of different sets and like, you know, my opinion was always valued and present. So in in that way, also, I didn't have that sort of like, I need to be on the set or they're going to ch- fuck with my words. I was just hanging around and just being super, super excited. It's just really exciting to walk onto a big set and see all this, you know, his apartment just living in, in some warehouse in Toronto and it just makes you feel powerful and cool. Like I, I, we made that up and now it's like, we're, I'm standing in it. So I, I did a lot of wide eyed. Wow. And, you know, chatting with Reese Witherspoon and then did my part. And I was really super nervous when I did my part in a way that I'm not normally as an actor, just because it's a really weird thing to switch from collaborator to writer and uh, to director and actor. I just really sucked for a couple of takes and then Mary fixed it. How was she as a director to work with? She was great. I mean, she's very funny I don't know if you've ever talked to her or seen interviews with her, but I can do a flawless impression of her. This is how she talks. Oh, would you mind if I, um, okay, well, yeah, uh, okay, well, sorry, I just, and, but within all of that, she gets exactly what she wants, but she's very, very soft-spoken and she's not like, she doesn't, she doesn't lose her temper and she doesn't anything, but she, but she'll do it 20 times if she hasn't gotten what she wants. So, um, but I think everyone's always kind of amazed. It's like this woman who's, you know, she's sort of fatigued and has like, you know, a very kind of soft-spoken demeanor. This woman is like, fuck yeah, I know what I want. Like, there's going to need to be more blood on those corpses, and I'm going to need you to fuck her from behind. (laughs) 
the cast of this film is just amazing. I mean, and so many people that, you know, I, I had heard of a lot of them at that point, but, uh, you know, Justin Throw now I uh, is everywhere, it feels like. But at the time, it's like, who is this guy? This guy's amazing. And just that was the way that it was with so many of the actors in the movie. I know we had Josh, Josh Lucas and we had um, Matt Ross. We had well, even Christian Bale was not such a huge star. Reese was already a huge star, but I have to say um, part in American Psycho, I just love her in that movie so much. It's like she got to be one that she hardly ever gets to be, you know, because she always gets to play the tightly wound kind of borderline psychotic person, but you like her. But in this one, she's just tightly wound, but like, you're just like, she's a monster. <laughs> yeah, we had, and Dustin, yeah, I, forget, I always forget that, he, you know, now he's like Mr. Jennifer Aniston and, you know, he's like the leftovers and writes for Ben Stiller and, you know, does all this, you know, he's a rock star. You know, we Mary. He's in Mary's first film. Uh, I shot Andy Warhol in a small part, and you know, he's we're all friends. So it was. It has been fun to watch him become, a, you know, guy on the cover of People magazine. And you know, it's interesting. Matt Ross's part was uh, originally supposed to be Paul Giamatti, who um, who did a bunch of readings with us, but then had to back out for scheduling reasons. But Matt Ross is amazing, and Matt Ross just directed his own movie. Uh, and I'd forgotten this until recently, talking with Mary that we had signed Billy Crudup on to play Patrick Bateman and Billy Crudup, you know, was in it to win it and we were doing it. And then after maybe two months, he called Mary and said, I just, I don't feel like I get this character. I don't think I can do this, which is so interesting. I always wonder, first of all, I think what incredible integrity as an actor it, to, to know that it's going to be a, you know, a real movie and a, and a big, you know, it's going to get publicity by the very nature of the book that it's an adaptation of. And to just really not be able to find it and to be able to step down from that, I always wonder if he regrets that or if he's like, yeah, that, that couldn't have done that. And whereas Christian was like, yep, got it. I'm um, becoming Patrick Bateman before your eyes. Because, you know, Christian, when he came to audition for us, he was like fresh off a plane. He was skinny and he was pale and he had cute, crooked British teeth, you know, like David Bowie style. And he absolutely transformed himself, got his teeth turned into crazy American perfect teeth, made his body into that madness that he did. And, you know, spoke in an American accent, spoken in an American accent for the entire time we were shooting to the point where at the rap party, he was back to his real accent. And people on the crew were like, why is Christian talking in that funny accent? Is he drunk? (laughs) (laughs) That's how he really talks. And he did not socialize. We had this moment once in a read through when we were first, um, getting gearing up to shoot in Toronto and we were doing an actor read through. He was seriously on the phone about returning videotapes because he really was renting videotapes and watching them. And he was speaking in his American accent and he was like eating a chicken breast and like a slice of lemon and Mary and I, and he had, you know, transformed himself into this perfect person. And Mary and I just kind of looked at each other like, are we in the fucking room with Patrick Bateman? Like this is really intense to be a part of that said, actually doing a scene with him. Uh, you know, when you do a sex scene with someone and then they kill you, you really get to know them as, and as an actor. <laughs> and he was, I, I always feel like I have to really point out that even though he got a bad rap for going off on someone years later, that he is super amazing to work with, like so great. And, you know, we had a really challenging thing to, that we had to do together, you know, because we had to not only just do a sex scene where he kills me, but we, but there's like a blood packet that we both have to make sure 
gets pierced and then spreads on the sheets. And you know what I mean? There's a lot of stuff going on besides just the acting. A lesser actor or just a lesser, a less generous person would have been, that would have been a hellish day. And actually it was really great. I mean, he's just a really, he's, you know, he's so good at what he does. It's just, uh, you know, just that alone is it is makes you better if you're w- working with him. But also, he's just a really super sweet guy. I'm sure you've, you've probably actually heard the recording of him going off on someone when he was doing, I think it was Terminator or Batman. What was he doing? Yeah, it was Terminator 4. In, within the industry, so many people I know have said that cinematographer that he's yelling at is someone that everyone has wanted to yell at for a decade. <laughs> like Within the industry, people are like, fuck yeah, finally someone went off on that guy. When it comes to a scene like that where you are getting murdered, do you do multiple takes of that just for coverage? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had to do – well, first of all, we had to do probably like three takes just of the wide shot because, because we couldn't get the blood right. Like we got blood all over ourselves and like none on the sheet. And, you know, in filmmaking, that means we get up, we get all the blood off of us, the sheets have to be completely changed and we have to start all over. Like it's at least a half hour reset. So we were, we got it right. After the third time we were like, okay, this is just ridiculous. Like let's really figure out how to get this blood on the sheets. That particular shot is actually all in one. It's one wide of me getting killed. So um, I think it was, it was probably like five takes maybe because she didn't, she didn't do a lot of coverage on it, but it was, um, that was also when I, she, we, she and I both agree that we can't stand it in movies. When um, somehow you, the man nudity from the waist up is visible, but somehow the woman, somehow the sheet just stays right above her breast. And so Mary, Mary said to me, like, I will make this promise to you. I will not linger on your tits if you promise to just struggle as you would given the situation. And I was like, good. And then, you know, I, that, again, I'm so lucky as an actor. You just don't get that level of trust. So you get a, a glimpse of my breath, but like, you know, it makes sense. And it's, you know, it, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't feel gratuitous unless maybe you're me and you show up at your friend's house years later and all your friends are hanging around and just, you look over and they freeze frame that shot on the television. <laughs> <laughs> just like we can see your boobs though, just so you know. The funny thing about that actually is that in the, the scene right after I get killed, he jumps up and runs after the other woman in the scene. Also, speaking of amazing talent, Kara Seymour, who went on just after that to be in Lars Venture's Dancer in the Dark and then has been in a million things since. She's a great actor. So he chases her through a bathroom right after that. And he slips and there's a dead body face down in the bathroom, which you cannot tell is me, but actually is me. And I'll tell you what a rough day on the set is being covered in fake blood, totally naked. And because of reset and continuity issues, between takes, they just like put a tarp over me and then crew is stepping over me. But they can't actually lay the blanket on you because that would stick to the fake blood. So there's like a little tent formed around me. Like that was a long day. I long, long after what I saw the movie, I was like, Mary, that could have been anyone. That could have been a dummy. All you needed was an ass covered in blood. That was one of my roughest days on a set ever, just because it's just kind of, maybe maybe your mind goes a lot of places when you have to lay for hours face down, covered in blood, naked. Did you get any guff for being involved with this film? Because I know that there was so much talk about the book when it came out. Had that kind of faded out by this point? Oh God, no, not at all. I mean, it had faded, and then of course, once the the word out word got out that the movie's being made, uh, you know, there were protesters on the set in Toronto because we shot almost all of it in Toronto with like a week in New York to do exterior stuff. They had had maybe in the last 
five years, they had had a really serious serial killer. So they were a little serial killer sensitive. And they, so we had protesters, like we had to do all kinds of tricky things with like the call sheet and addresses and stuff to like try to keep protesters at bay for those lot of cloak and dagger. Personally, funnily enough, I didn't get a lot like in, you know, in real time, uh, any flack, but in the coming years, women would, would come up to me and say, you know, I was really mad that that movie was being made. And I never wanted to see it. And then somebody told me that I should really see it. I just want to say it's really, not only is it a really good movie, but it's really feminist. And it really is, it's smart and it's all these things to which I always think to myself. So, but what you're saying to me is that you thought I was a crazy sellout until this moment. <laughs> You've been hating on me for years. And then now, I mean, what's amazing about American Psycho for me is that, look, it's what, it's 17 years later and people still want to talk about it. That's not true of a lot of movies. That's not true of other movies I've done. In that way, it's almost like the movie didn't get didn't get the love that it gets now until at least five and then ten years later. And now it's got even more love than ever. And I think it has a lot to do maybe with the fact that Christian has gotten so famous that people, a new generation, is going back and looking at what else he's done and seeing this and then being like, wow, this is a cool movie. So there's also a new generation of people who are loving the movie, which also removes us from even further from whatever controversy the book had. But, you know, famously, Gloria Steinem was very against the book. And then the story goes that she, when she heard that Leonardo DiCaprio was going to do it, she took him out to a baseball game. Don't tell me why I know all of this, but I, but I know it to be true. And said to Leonardo DiCaprio, look, you just came off Titanic. Thousands of young teenage girls are going to just be dying to see what you do next. Please do not do this movie. Like you're going to make tons of young girls watch this horrible thing. So Gloria Steinem being the mother of feminism and all. When I heard that story, it made me very sad because I was like, oh, no, if you told me when I was 19 that Gloria Steinem was going to think I was a pariah, I would have burst into tears. But I know that I made it, you know, a socially responsible movie and a good movie. But what's even weirder about that story is that Gloria Steinem ended up marrying Christian Bale's dad. When the movie comes out, what does that do for you and for your career? Does that open some doors for you? Oh, it was incredible. I mean, before the movie even got made, because of Leonardo DiCaprio, actually, this is just so crazy how these things work. So Leo was attached to it, and he had, you know, just come off Titanic, so he was like the most famous movie star in the world. And because of that, and because people knew that I wrote the script that he was about to do, people, and I just moved to L.A., People would come up to me in bars that I didn't even know and with like sweaty scripts in their hands saying, you know, can you, can you get this to Leo? And I was like, wow, this is what it's like to be 12 steps removed from a big movie star, you know, where all of a sudden like I'm Leo's best friend, you know, because the movie got so much hype when, when it did come out, you know, for good or for bad, it just was a publicity kind of, um, it was just of note. I got into a lot of rooms as a, as a writer. To this day, it's by far the thing on my resume that makes people, well, well, I'll tell you what they usually say when they look at it on paper or when I tell them, they say, wait, you wrote American Psycho? To, to which, depending on my mood, I say sometimes I would have to be really fucking crazy to make that up because you can Google it. Because of the nature of Go Fish, which was my other, you know, the other film I've done that got, you know, lots and lots of press outside of as a phenomenon as much as a, a film. But because of the nature of that film, I think people really thought they had a story to tell. It's kind of documentary, like it's, you know, really specific about the lesbian community and, you know, that, you know, that they don't, they're not filmmakers, they're, they're, they're primarily lesbians. And 
So for American Psycho to come along and legitimize me as just a person who writes was it was amazing. It was it was a godsend in terms of legitimacy. Apropos of nothing, I was a big fan of your role in uh, preaching to the perverted. <laughs> oh yeah, speaking of things I did in the '90s that were fun and crazy, <laughs> that was one of the most that that is one of the most fun experiences I've ever had making a movie. Even though I don't think it's like you know an amazing movie, but I look amazing, and they, just being in and around the fetish world in London, you know, in my mid twenties was, was beyond fun. Some of the people I met there are still my good friends. That director, Stuart Urban is actually talking about making a sequel <laughs> because if you remember in the end of preaching the pervert and I'm pregnant. And so he wants a sequel where I'm still a dominatrix, but obviously a much older one. My daughter who I'm pregnant, who I'm, uh, I guess at the very end, I have a baby is now a conservative politician and is, you know, coming up against me once again. <laughs> All of which just, I say, yes, please, that sounds so fun. I want to do that again. <laughs> That's a funny movie. I remember hanging out actually with Kevin Smith at some point after I made that movie and a bunch of his Kevin Smith boys. And I was just talking with one of his guys. And he was like, did you ever see that weird movie, that British movie, that dominatrix movie with that? Like, and he's telling me the movie. I'm like, yeah, that was me. <laughs> you know, cause I'm so, I'm, I'm so just done up in that movie that I, you know, people didn't even recognize me at the rap party. You know, when you spend six weeks in that level of costume and corset and heels and, you know, uh, PVC and, you know, rubber gets really hot when you're hot and really cold when you're cold. By the time I got to the rap party, I was basically wearing velvet pajamas and no makeup. And I was like, hey, and everyone was like, who's that? And I'm like, I'm the star of this movie. It was the first time that I had genuinely been asked to be in a real a movie with a real budget that I was the star of. And that was, that was so, I just felt so cool. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, it was great. It, it's uh, it, 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 when I look back on it, cause my sister's obsessed with it. She thinks it's the best movie ever made, but mostly she's just making fun of me. But when I look back on it, I think there's so much humor in it. That's very British. And that because I was young and hadn't spent a lot of time in the UK, I just didn't get it. So like I'm, I'm doing and saying things that I don't fully understand. So I could have been better is all I'm saying. I could have been better, but I guess we all feel that way. We did a long time ago. You know, I'm not a trained actor. I'm not a trained to anything that I do for a living. So uh, I, I was, I was just making it up as I want to go along, which luckily is, you know, in a Venn diagram of acting, that's one of the things that, you know, you, you even the stop clock might be right. if You're just making it up. I know you tell this story in the uh, documentary Tales from the Script, but can you tell me a little bit about your experience on Blood Rain? God, I really have to watch that documentary because I've actually never seen it, but I but so many people have seen it, and that's the only way they know me is just because they because just because I think of all the the subjects and that I'm the most kind of I don't know I just like just tell the story without being without mincing words because I burning a bridge with Uva Bowl is like. To know him, the bridge is already burned. There is no bridge. You know what I mean? So I could just be really frank about that experience. I mean, because he's just such a crazy person and everyone knows it. Well, my experience with that was simply that Uva was really persistent with my manager that I, that I be the writer for the, for this project. You know, Blood Rain is based on a, a video game that is a vampire. It's actually a vampire Nazi video game, or at least the first one was. I, no interest in video games, no interest in vampires and was really kind of like, you know, looked up Uva a little bit and was like, he's notoriously makes the worst films ever. Like I've just, 
I don't feel like I need to really like work hard to get this job. And, um, but he was incredibly persistent. And at the time I was working on the L word, the TV show, the Showtime show. So I was also really busy. Like I wasn't hurting for money and I wasn't, I had had no time. So I just was putting it off a lot. But finally my manager just said, can we please just write, like just take a minute to play the video game. I'm like, I don't even, how do you even, I don't even have a video game. Like is it Xbox? I don't even know. So, so I, I asked my sister's boyfriend who was a big video game head. I'm like, can you get this? Can you play it for me? And I watched it for like, I watched him play it for like 20 minutes. I was like, okay, I guess. I get it, ish. You know, plot wise, you know, you know, most video games, you know, especially, you know, when this was like 2000, I guess, 2001. Uh, you know, the plot. It's, it's, not, it's not rocket science, the plot or the the world. So I just took literally took uh, like a day and a half and just was like, mm, well, Uba, Uba said he didn't want it to be in um in the Nazi world. He wanted it to be in you know 17th century Romania. So I was like, okay, because I know more about that. Not um, and. Uh, and um and I just uh just made a lot of shit up. I guess that's what you do as a writer, as an actor. And um he was like, We love it, I got the job. And uh, and then when I wrote the script, I was just late delivering the script and that's when he started yelling at me. I think I quote him in the documentary where I say, you know, where I he I, I mean I was two weeks late delivering the script, which in the world of delivering scripts is nothing. You know what I mean? Nothing. And he's just like, You fucking lied to me. You, you know, like you said you would have this script. But what I didn't realize was that he was, they were already on the set in Romania waiting for my draft. Who makes movies like this? Like, who, you know what I mean? Like who, you know, you don't like the reason he was screaming at me is because he was bleeding money because he had a crew sitting around in Romania waiting for my first draft. To me, this is insanity. Like, I don't care how much money you have. That's so, such a crazy way to go about it. And we you know what it says, obviously, is he had so little value. For the, he just needed something like tell me that tell me the scenes and who are in them, you know. And then of course the actual movie is it's just uh, but I, it's hard to even uh, articulate. Obviously, so Billy Zane is in the movie, and word is that the character that Billy Zane plays in the movie was not uh, is not a character that I wrote. It's like Billy Zane was in Romania doing something else, and he and Uva like had a drink together, and then he's like, "Come be in my movie," and then. Um, so much of it was rewritten, so much so that the producer called me two days before the premiere and said, so we just want to let you know that um, there's been some rewriting on the script. Uva did some rewriting. Uva, Uva's first language is not English. I'm sure he has many languages, but it's not English. So also just the idea of being rewritten by someone who, you know, speaks differently than you. As a writer, you're kind of like, okay, you know, maybe when he writes, it's, uh, it's not, not the same as when he speaks, which, you know, just syntax. Let's just talk syntax. But then the producer said, and then he let the actors take a crack at it. Did he like take a crack at it? Like, what are those terms? He like, I, so I was like, okay, I'm emotionally prepared. And then when I went to the screening, I was literally laughing out loud. And it was like at man's trees, like all the all the stars were there, like red carpet, all of it. And I was sitting next to Michael Madsen. <laughs> and just seriously, like imagine like a, an audience that's really quiet because they cannot believe how horrible the movie is they're seeing. And just the one cackling voice going <laughs> and my friends being like stop and I'm like no it's fucking funny and then you know it got a Razzie and then it's often when I do when I do interviews people are like oh um do you, are you comfortable talking about blood rain and I'm like oh hell yeah I am it's like I really I, I when I when I when he was so persistent with me writing it about me writing it I 
finally I was like, okay, you know what? Let's call this a challenge. Like, I don't know what I'm doing here. It's so out of my genre. It's so out of, you know, my, I'm not passionate about this, but let me just learn and like, just see what I can do. Like, that's my job to make stuff up. So I embraced it in that way. And so the fact that it became a movie and the fact that, you know, if it's not going to be good, it might as well get a Razzie is my theory, right? (laughs) You know, be the best of the worst if you're not going to be the best of the best. Did you get invited to the Razzie ceremony? No, and I'm really sad that I didn't because I only found out that the, it won a Razzie after the fact. And then I also took great fact that so many of the reviews of it, and you know, I mean, a critic loves an Uva Ball movie. You can just feel the critics just like, it's like somebody just put a big like buffet table of junk food in front of them and they have an excuse to eat it. Like the way, like it's just fun to read critics' reviews of Uva's movies because they're just like, Mm, this is going to be fun. How many different ways can I shred this man to pieces? Um, but they almost always said, surprising turn from amazing writer, Guinevere Turner. So they always, it was always also like they thought maybe Uva made it up that I wrote it, which I loved. I walked up to him at the premiere. He was standing in front of the poster um, posing. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I don't met him in person once before. And I'm just like, I'm, I like, I want my photo op with Uva Bull. And I walked up to him and, it was, and I said, hi, and like sort of stood next to him. And he looked at me like I was a weird stalker. <laughs> I'm like, it's Guinevere. I'm Guinevere. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then he did all this press afterwards. Like the next thing he wanted to do was Blood Rain Western. And so I wrote him an email like, hey, I'll write a Blood Rain Western. Rick it. Never for me again. <laughs> He was too busy training to punch journalists in Belgium, I think, to really respond to my email. Yeah, you should have boxed him. I should have boxed him. You know what? He would punch a girl. He would punch a, a, a one much smaller than him who clearly has had no training. He's very, I'm I'm really curious. I actually haven't really paid attention to what he's been doing lately. But the man is a phenomenon when you think about, I mean, the, the budget for Bloodring was $25 million. And it lasted, I mean, it didn't even last a weekend in L.A., and there were no trailers and there were billboards everywhere. Like all my friends were like, oh my God, this movie, look at this, it's everywhere. And I'm like, I, they just have a really big marketing budget, publicity budget. Like there's, I'm like, it, you, do you see what's on the poster? It's just like a tiny man on a horse in, in the middle of a red nothing. Like it's like they got nothing and they know it. And they're not, you notice how there's no trailer it's because they got nothing and they know it. But Christiana Loken got a lover, star of Blood Rain just was so sweet to me at the premiere and was just like, thank you so much for your script. I really, really loved doing it. And I was like, huh, that's a really nice person. It's because that script really wasn't good. I mean, you know what? It, it, it was genius compared to what's on the screen. (laughs) 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 But it was still, you know, it's a first draft. I had never written a script that became a movie that didn't have, I'm going to go with 10 minimum of, you know, rewrites. That's just how it works. You know what I mean? It's like if you took a baby that was a newborn baby that was an adult uh, that was just born. And then all of a sudden you made, you gave it clothes and made it an adult. Like it's not, it's not going to look like an adult. It's going to look like a newborn baby in a suit. You know what I mean? I've never used that analogy before, but I love it. I don't know why I thought of Donald Trump. Maybe because those baby hands he's got. Maybe because of he looks like a, well, he looks like an old baby in a suit. I mean, how do you have that much skin? Not just get a good fucking suit. What is that? Can you tell me about some of the projects you're working on now? Because I know you're super busy. I know it, we kind of went back and forth for a long time trying to set this up just because it's like, no, I'm filming. Okay, now I've got to break. No, I'm filming again. It's like you seem like you're always on the go. 
I am. And I love that about my life. Just in the last couple of weeks, I was doing an indie film in um, Northern California called Lost in the Middle that um, was one of those like back to basics kind of really, really, really scrappy things. But weirdly, perversely, I thrive in those environments because A, they are really excited that I'm there, you know, because I like have more experience than anyone else on the set. So those environments are always learning environments for me as well because I direct, I've directed shorts. And so when I watch someone direct a feature, I'm just studying, like, how would I do that? How would I do that differently? How can I help that person do it okay now before they start crying in the corner? There's always tears. So I did that, and I just, I don't know, I was in Chicago doing a PSA, and I'm writing, um, collaborating on several scripts that take me sometimes to New York. And, and then, I mean, concretely, because, you know, we're all always doing amazing things until they become things. Concretely, I have, I'm finishing the script with Mary. Karen, that's about homeless outcasts of the foster care system, uh, kind of junky hooker, scary teens, and, and it sort of follows their life and the complications. And then um, I wrote a script about the women who killed Sir Charles Manson, and specifically about their time in prison. It took me a long time to get there. I was hired to just, they just said, write something about the women. And then I was sort of like, Ugh, you know, this is such well, well-tread territory, this you know, the, the Manson story and the sensationalism of it all. And then I just, I found this book written by a woman who taught them when they were all in um, a special security unit. The three of them were in a special security unit for seven years before they got to go into general population. And in those seven years, this one woman was assigned to teach them. And she wrote a book, a very obscure book written on a Canadian press and uh, an academic press. And I found it and I found her, the woman who wrote it. And then the whole thing just like it's so clear to what the movie had to be. And so it's really, it's, you know, it lives in flashback where you see how they got where they are, but it also tracks each of them coming to like deprogramming themselves in whatever way they did and coming to consciousness about taking, taking responsibility for what they did as individuals and not as Charlie's girl. I'm really excited about that. I can't wait. Mary just uh, finished, is just finishing a Netflix series called Alias Grace, um, which will be out uh, in the fall. So she's been busy with that, which is very cool, written by Sarah Polly. So Mary's been um, busy, but then she's going she's gonna to direct that. That's like my, that's my, my little fingers tapping, just being so excited for when that movie gets made, because that is my next big thing. That is, that is one of those things where Mary, Mary and I always read each other's scripts, regardless of whether we're working on them together. And she read that script and she was like, God, I wish I could direct this. This is the best thing you've ever written. And then I told the producers, Mary Heron said, <laughs> and they were like, um, she's high. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just doing a, a billion things. And, um, you know, that it's an interesting thing I, that I didn't feel, I didn't feel the pressure of this when I was younger, but I, I didn't understand it when I was younger, but to really be successful or, or, and by successful, I mean, continue to work in this world, you have to be working on a million things because of the, because 999,000 of them won't come to fruition. And you have to also be strong enough to accept that. And that's really, uh, especially weirdly, if you've had success, it's hard to really absorb that. But, but it does strengthen you. Like if there is more, there can be more. It's just, it's a lot of, it's a lot of um, faith and hard work before there's like glory, money, and actually standing on a set. But I did, actually, I just remembered one more thing that I wanted to tell you about Back to American Psycho. Funnily enough, when it was at 
Sundance, American Psycho. Uh, Kevin was there, Kevin Smith, as a juror. And, you know, we saw each other and he said, you know, I'm super excited to see your movie. And then he said, um, let's have dinner after. So we had a plan to have dinner after. And then I got a text from him saying, actually, I have a cold. I, you know, I can't make dinner. I was like, oh, that's a bummer, whatever. Years later, literally years later, I run into him and he says, I've been meaning to tell you forever that I saw American Psycho and I thought it sucked so much. I hated it so much that I couldn't even have dinner with you because I didn't know what to say. But now I have that it's awesome and it's really great. And I'm sorry I blew you off. <laughs> well, at least it came clean and at least he likes it now. I know. And what's funny is like um, Outfest, which is the L.A. Uh, gay lesbian LGBT film festival here, is doing an anniversary screening of Chasing Amy because it's their 20 year anniversary. And uh, they've asked me to do a conversation with Kevin on stage afterwards, which should be interesting because Chasing Amy comes from, I mean, Kevin would never have written about lesbians if he hadn't met me and Rose and his producer, Scott was really into me. And like, you know, they just, you know, they were just really like lesbians. Like, what are they, what do you guys do? Like, huh? and, um, and uh, so that script, that script sort of came out of their relationship with me Kevin asked me to like read it and say like, well, lesbians make fun of me for this. Well, lesbians hate this. Like, you know, what do you think? And I gave him notes. And then I said, I was like, but make no mistake. Lesbians are going to hate this. Like you, you wrote a movie where a lesbian decides to be with a man. I'm so wrong. Lesbians love that movie, by the way. So I, at least I can admit when I'm wrong, which it sounds from this conversation, like, like 50% of the time I'm wrong. So it'll be interesting to be on stage with him 20 years later and, and ask him about it. And, uh, you know, just the Kevin Smith of it all. My my opening question plans to be like, how would would you like to thank the LGBT community right now that's in the audience for boosting your career after Mallrats? <laughs> he can take it. He can take it. Home is where I want to be, but I guess I'm already there. I come home. home, home, home. She lifted up her wings. Let's guess that this must be the place. talking about American Psycho, and we played out of those interviews with Miles Fisher's This Must Be the Place. Miles Fisher is an actor uh, who ironically looks a little bit like Tom Cruise and has played Tom Cruise in different parodies before. I'm the way to, to happiness. Okay, I'm, the way to, I'm the way to peace. I can, I can, uh, I can unite cultures. I can, I can eat planets. I mean, I can just... Uh, <laughs> Dragonfly's not a superhero, okay? I am. Because <laughs> I'm a... Uh, I can't even fly! <laughs> <You> can't... <laughs> I can fly, okay? 
He is known mostly for being in Mad Men. Mad Men is a show that I haven't actually caught up with. Apparently plays some sort of a drug dealer in Mad Men. Sells a lot of reefer. And Fisher did this amazing... I can't really call it a mashup because it's pretty much a straight cover of This Must Be the Place by Talking Heads. But then to go back to our earlier conversation about Talking Heads having a place inside of American Psycho... And then he makes this whole video as if he were Patrick Bateman in American Psycho. So it's just this really kind of great bringing together of all these different ideas. And there have been a couple really good parodies of American Psycho. His is one. I, I mentioned it to uh, to Mary Heron. And I hope I didn't call him Miles Teller, by the way. I need to go back and listen to that interview because I always say Miles Teller instead of Miles Fisher. Two very different people. A lot of people know the Huey Lewis parody that he did with Weird Al. Do you like American Psycho? It's okay. Although originally polarizing to audiences and critics alike, it developed a much-deserved cult following when released on digital video disc or DVD. There it found a second life and really came into its own commercially and artistically. Hey. Yes, Al? Why are there newspapers all over the place? Is that like a Huey Lewis on the news joke or something? <laughs> no, Al. And then there's this terrific jeans commercial about denim and this whole, it's basically the business card scenario, but done with denim. Have you ever tried the Indonesian Kopi Luwak beans? And what's that, a dark roast? No, John Paul. It's the one excreted by the Asian palm sieve. That's actually a thing. <laughs> the process improves the coffee through two mechanisms. Selection and digestion. Selection occurs when the sieve choose to eat the coffee berries containing the better beans. Hey, from? Yes, John Paul. Why is yesterday's news all over the place? Are we redecorating or something? No, John Paul. I highly recommend that. Again, I'll try to put all of that stuff out on the website at projection-boot.com. Have either of you ever had a chance to see the sequel to American Psycho? Uh, yep. Well, I'd I'd actually watched it years ago. Oh, now, mind you, I knew it was going to be a piece of shit. It was one of the very first Netflix streaming movies that I watched because I was like, well, it was my friend's account. I'm like, well, fuck, I'm not paying for it. I, I broke down <laughs> and I watched it. And I will say this. I did watch it again here recently. And to quote the guys on We Hate Movies, I had to drink a tall glass of water to get through it. I know they listen to your show, so I hope they do that one day because it is fucking terrible. Just say no. And I'll be honest, it really made me sad because, of course, I'm sure I'm like everybody else. If I get bored while I'm watching a movie, I'm going to look at my phone. So I go on IMDb and look up some of the trivia. And I was really shocked because the guy who directed it did make a movie I genuinely really liked. And I was like, well, how did you go from that to this? Just I, I don't know. Did you watch Mike? 
I would like to see the original version of this. There's an article out on comingsoon.net. It's uh, in defense of American Psycho 2. Now, they don't say that it's actually a good movie, but they they say that they would like to see the original version just like I would, because I can't say it's an in-name-only sequel to American Psycho, but it almost was. There was a script called The Girl Who Wouldn't Die. It was basically the meat of the movie the meat of the movie that that you saw that you didn't really care for all the ties to patrick bateman all that horseshit narration that she gives at the beginning and end and all of those weird you know ties that they try to force from one movie to the other all of that stuff was added later that was a thank you Lionsgate for fucking this movie over kind of thing I would love to see a version without all of that kind of garbage in there, because I think that the girl who wouldn't die would have actually been kind of a fun little thriller. I mean, Mila Kunis, I thought, did a pretty good job in it. I always love to see William Shatner, even when he's in shitty movies. But yeah, I think all of that stuff just kind of ruined their own movie. They probably boosted their Netflix ratings and their you know or their their streaming numbers and their video rentals their dvd rentals but at the end of the day they ruined what i think could have been a probably pretty okay movie it would have at least been mediocre or like i said the guy who directed it has made other movies and some that aren't bad uh so i'm just really curious is did this get bungled in the editing to make it fit into american psycho or was it just a mess to begin with and then they made the connection to american psycho to try to sell a unsellable product you know the other thing is is and again i just was looking at trivia because i couldn't keep my eyes on the movie you know i read that it costs like 10 million to make and that just made my jaw drop because american psycho was made for like seven Point five million. So you're telling me this movie costs two and a half more, two and a half million more to make, and it looks ten times shittier, just even the in the look of it. I, I that just shocked me. <laughs> you can't say that it was inflation because this is only two years after. That was the thing that, like, if you told me that was made for three million, I would have said, "All right, yeah, you know, straight to video movie, sure." Just I don't get American it. Psycho looks way more expensive. Oh yeah, they had great crew on that. I mean, I want to see it now. Yeah, I mean, you can watch it if you have HBO now. That's how I found it, but it's um, it, it, tough. It, going. It's mer- it's mercifully under ninety minutes, so at least that has that going for it. But it's still a very long eighty-eight minutes. <laughs> There was a good article on a, a website called TalkHouse.com uh, where they talked to Stuart Gordon. Actually, it's by Stuart Gordon um, talking about his initial experience because he was originally set to do the uh, adaptation and do the, the movie. And he was going to cast a younger uh, Johnny Depp, 28 years old at the time. So this would have kind of fit in when Johnny Depp was making really – kind of offbeat uh, movies working with cutting edge directors before he kind of fell into the horse shit that he's been working on lately, just making these fucking pirate movies and whatever the fuck that horrible comedy quote unquote was that he made last year. Mordecai Mordecai and these Kevin Smith films. He has a lifestyle to maintain y'all. Oh Jesus. (laughs) What's he got? Like 45 houses. Well, he's had to cut back a little bit because 
he says there was some financial malfeasance, whatever. Anyway, he's, he's a fair way to be in broke, but he does have a very, uh, luxurious lifestyle that he needs to maintain. So, um, I think for the foreseeable future, he'll be doing whatever he can. So kind of like the, the Nick Cage school of, um, movie making. We've had a lot of fun with those Nick Cage movies. It's not it's certainly the Johnny Depp that was working with, you know, like on Crybaby and even something like Benny and June. Uh, What's he doing, Gilbert Or Yeah. Oh, God. Talk about a guy that just kind of fell from movie grace. I He was my favorite, one of my favorite actors for a while. And then, uh, not so much anymore. Now, I know after Stuart Gordon got the boot, it was supposed to be David Cronenberg. And that might have been kind of interesting to see that. Now, that there was a script that was produced by Norman Snyder, and he had worked with Cronenberg on Dead Ringers. He had worked on things like Body Parts, uh, Rated X, which was the uh, the movie that the, uh, Emilio Estevez and um, uh, Charlie Sheen made that wasn't Men at Work. So I uh, didn't get a chance to read that one. I skimmed a lot of that, but I know, David, you had a chance to read that. Now, how does that compare to what we ended up with? It is so far off. It's almost a different movie. In this version, um, Patrick Bateman is a bit more cocksure. He plays a bit cooler, which really is a detriment because, as we said earlier, you know, um, he's played as, you know, it's mentioned more than once. He's such a dork. And, you know, he mixes up characters a lot or condenses characters, which normally isn't that bad. But, you know, it's maybe it's because I've lived with this movie for so long to see. One character fold into the other just feels very odd to me. You know, I'm trying to remember how it ends. It it ends. He he and Gene end up together in this version, and they end up together in another version as well. Maybe we'll talk about that in a moment. But it's um, you know, which is too bad because um, I read it without uh, realizing who the screenwriter was, and I mean, he's got a pedigree. But in all fairness, it is a first draft, so <laughs> you know. Maybe that has something to do with it, but it's it takes a lot of liberties. It condenses a lot, and I get it. You're taking a 400-plus page book and trying to condense it into 90 minutes, two hours. That's a, no easy task, but it, it's easy to see why that uh, that version didn't get made. The one thing that I do appreciate is in the dialogue, they do keep this whole idea of Jean dropping her G's so, because there's this whole thing. They don't really play it up in the, the final film, but when she comes in and he is working on the crossword puzzle, she says, are you doing the crossword like D-O-I-N uh, apostrophe? He doesn't call her out on it in the film, but then he does say uh, just a couple lines later, he he makes fun of her and he says something about doing, you know, like, what are you doing tonight? And in the end of uh, this uh, Snyder screenplay, she says the caterer, that guy Cedric came to the apartment today, talk to talk about the wedding. So it's W D D I N apostrophe. <laughs> he says we should get a Ben and Jerry's ice cream cake. Patrick, who are Ben and Jerry? <laughs> And then, yeah, then they kind of debate about where they're going to go for dinner. So, again, I would like to have a reservation somewhere. How about 220, Flamingo, Oyster Bar, Counter Life, Spago East, Le Cirque. And they're just going back and forth between one and the other. So that's how it ends. It doesn't have the, the poignancy that I think we end the current film with. 
And then we talked with Mary Heron, who you got to hear a little bit about her and her draft of the screenplay, which uh, did you have a chance to read that one, David? You know, that was in that version. It was very, to me, disjointed because um, there are a lot of scenes that are, I don't want to say note for note what ended up in the actual movie, but, you know, it's based off of a book. So that does, you know, that doesn't surprise me, Uh, you know, especially when you're lifting dialogue and scenes. Of course, some things are going to, uh, you know, be the similar. Again, I don't know if this has to do with my having concurrently reading reading scripts, reading the book, watching the movie. But the Hanley script felt like she played shuffle a bit with events. You know, stuff that happens towards the beginning of the movie ended up towards the end and vice versa. And that was a little disjointing to me. Uh, But again, I don't know if that was really the case or if I just uh, was confused by trying to read multiple versions at once. Fortunately, I read that one first before I even listened to the book. So that one was the because I interviewed her back in April. So I made sure to read that one and then was listening to the book after that. And so there are a lot of at least in the beginning of the book, there's a lot of similarities to the screenplay. But, yeah, I can see where that kind of shuffling around because that the book and the and what we ended up with with the American Psycho film. I mean, everything is there for a reason. And if you take one of those Jenga pieces out the whole thing might crumble or at least would have a whole different look to it. But the way that they play it in the uh, Harry, uh, sorry, the Heron and, and Turner script is makes a lot of sense as far as these things building on each other as we go through, especially as he loses his mind more and more. We need to make sure that that uh, velocity is kept up and that things just get wilder and crazier as we go along. Now, there's so much when it comes to the music, and that was one thing that I did appreciate about the Hanley script was her dropping in kind of the musical cues throughout the script, and that follows along again with the book, because he's constantly talking about what songs are playing. And that's the thing, too. At first, I had to go back and listen to a couple sections over again, because I thought that something was wrong with my recording, because he'll go into a club, and they'll play a song, and then he'll go to another club, and they'll play the same song. And I guess it's just to show how these clubs are interchangeable from one to another, because he goes into one song, they're playing, uh, one club, and they're playing, it wasn't Devil Inside, but it was an NXS song, and then it goes into another club, and they're playing the same NXS song. That was one thing, I mean, the music... The music in the movie was fantastic, and uh, the the music, all the mentions in the book are fantastic. I have not yet had a chance to experience uh, the musical version. How <laughs> in the world did they do that? To me, it seems like almost like it would work, though. Because there's already so much music in it. I think if they made it, and they, and they sort of did, um, I listened to the soundtrack, I haven't seen the show, I think they would have been smarter to make it what they call a jukebox musical and just take the music from it and sing popular songs of the 80s. They do that a couple times. They did do a couple covers in the show, but most of it's original music. But I'll be honest with you, uh, I didn't see the whole show, of course, but just listening to the soundtrack and absorbing that, I did not like it. (laughs) I wanted so badly for it to be great because – you know, uh, me and my wife do community theater for, from time to time. We do go see shows in San Francisco. Uh, I like musicals, and I and I do enjoy the occasional uh, musical based on a movie. Um, but 
it didn't there's no catchy songs i'm not humming anything afterwards um i mean let's put it this way i mean i've been to see evil dead the musical and i'll go see that again in a heartbeat but american psycho i would go see it to see it because i want to see everything but the music but the music itself uh i don't think i'm going to be revisiting anytime soon I'm glad that they cast Matt Smith in the at least the London version of it. I'm not going to make fun of Matt Smith's uh, features or anything, which I know is kind of the popular thing to do. But I can see Matt Smith playing a psycho very oh, easily. Oh, sure. Yeah. He's played a good psycho on Lost River. He's very convincingly uh, psychotic. After seeing him in Doctor Who, I really wanted nothing to do with him ever again. I'll be honest, I don't think that it's his fault. I think it's all Steve Moffat's fault, which is just crazy, because I like Moffat's work in so many other things, but I just think that he fucking ruined that TV show. I've heard but people say that. That's a yeah. whole other part. I've heard people say that. Yeah. Well, I won't rush out to see American Psycho the musical anytime soon. I wish that those guys who did Silence of the Lambs the musical had taken a crack at that, because those guys actually do fantastic work and i mean i honestly i've never seen the production of silence of the lambs the musical but those songs are so fucking catchy and work so well i would love to have had them do that and they've done things like that uh, like one-offs of like the total recall musical and all these other things and yeah they do a great job when it comes to that stuff so i i i'll have to see if they ever did an american psycho knockoff type thing that wasn't related to the musical proper but i know there's something really profound to be said about his trump obsession and the fact that trump is president but it's like almost too easy there was one thing that i forgot when he's trying to get rid of kimball from his office he goes i'm gonna take a meeting with cliff huxtable <laughs> you guys catch that oh yeah well and, uh, yeah and yeah. i was like okay no one foresaw that but it, it, it just struck me as just very odd yeah it does stick out like a sore thumb now i mean i'll be honest i've always noticed that because i was a cosby kid growing up not of course not anymore uh <laughs> but uh i watched this today with my wife and she's watched it a few times on her own and she's like did he just say cliff Hux huxtable and i'm like yep yeah so. i certainly didn't notice it when you know like a few years ago or whenever it was and then it just it's like so like glaring now mm. and then back to back to the trump thing i mean um you know there's only one passing mention of it in the movie so it's easy to uh to miss but uh in the book it, it is just littered with trump references uh you know oh i know trump he's a really great guy or oh we're going to a benefit at trump's uh or you doesn't know, he oh. um doesn't he have an art of the deal on his desk yep when kimball comes to talk to him and he goes, is that a good book? And he's like, it's a great book. I'm glad I read the book again because I the, the Trump stuff would have been lost on me because uh, it's just like I said, it's a passing line in the movie about Ivana and it is littered throughout the book. He does say at one point, he says, is that Donald Trump's car? When they're in the I think it's when he's in the car with Evelyn and he's got the headphones on i could be wrong about where exactly it is in the movie but i did write it down that sounds yeah. that does sound right to me that just might it's be that. part of my jumbling the movie and the scripts <laughs> but yeah donald trump is everywhere in that book when we've talked about this presidency and stuff people 
you probably don't remember David uh, too much of the eighties since you weren't were only just a, a young <laughs> at that. The second point. half parts. <laughs> yeah, second half of it. So more second term into George H. W.'s term kind of thing. But I mean, Reagan, what he represented, what he did. I mean, people nowadays go bananas about what a great president he was. And those are the people where I'm just like, you really like Trump, too, don't you? Because really, he didn't do a whole lot of great things for the country, except for maybe that one percent. And that was the whole thing. The whole trickle down economics uh, fucked over so many people in that they end the movie with the Iran Contra stuff. You know, oh, we're going to put Iran Contra behind us. He's lying. He was making. He's making bad deals. He's making deals worse than Trump. And to me, the Reagan 80s are back in full. This is the yuppies have won. They came back from the 1980s and they have won and they're in power now. So it's basically like having Patrick Bateman as your president. Uh, Yeah. Just a downer way to end it, to go on this podcast. I I agree. (laughs) No, I agree. But I think Patrick Bateman, the character, might be a little bit embarrassed by Trump now because of who Trump's base is. I, you know, they're I, not the Valentino soup crowd. I, I might disagree with you only because I think Patrick Bateman has just such a fucking hard on for Trump. I think he would follow him wherever he goes. I mean, the Patrick Bateman of the eighties is not going to be the same Patrick Bateman of the 20 odds. You know, of course we're talking about a fictional character that kills prostitutes so who knows but if he were to fall in line with the rest of the yuppies from the 80s i think he might still be loving that guy i love that patrick bateman will give lip service to so many things like the lip service to the anti-semitic stuff at the beginning and then there's that weird scene where he he basically outlines all the things that need to be done to make the world a better place and how about providing food and shelter to the homeless and just like outlines this whole thing. Does he even say rights for women? Does he (laughs) even say he's a total misogynist? He may. I don't know if it's in the movie or the book, but I think he does in that speech somewhere say something about close the the wage gap between male and female. That's as far as he'll go for women's rights because it has to do with money. But fuck everything else. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, like, that scene uh, in today's context just makes my mouth drop because, um, you know, I know the show isn't about talking about us too too much, but I will, I will say this much. I'm a social worker. So for me to hear those things come from his mouth when he's so clearly motivated by greed and has disgust for anybody who doesn't make, I'm assuming, 100000 a year, just is jaw dropping to me, you know, he had to have memorized that from numerous articles just to sound informed. I can't imagine Donald Trump ever saying any combination of those words in that, that, you know, apartheid. Uh, I'm sure he does. What's the fuck is that? Is that the new restaurant? <laughs> There's one part in the book that I, oh God, I, I fucking loved it where I can't even remember which character it was, but they went on a trip. I don't think it was related to the uh, the the. It might have been related to the dinner that you're talking about, where he was asking about, you know, was it was it sautéed in, in truffle oil or any of those kind of things. And the guy 
when he talks about his trip, he starts to talk. Basically, it sounds like Brett Easton Ellis just copied this, and I'm not accusing him of plagiarism. I'm just saying the way that it sounded. It sounded like he just copied it out of a travel brochure, and this guy recites it verbatim and just talks. It sounds so much like it was written by a copywriter to talk about the beauty and the excitement and the activities for children and just goes through the whole list and he'll stop for a second and then he'll go right back into it. And it didn't, it wouldn't have made sense in the movie at all, but in the book it works wonderfully because it's just like these people talk like, like what you were saying with Bateman, like he must've read that somewhere and memorized it. They sound like travel brochures. They sound like, they are the descriptions in catalogs of things rather than being real people. They don't say that explicitly, but they kind of nod to it again in the book where uh, they're talking about like, well, you shouldn't wear Argyle socks with an Argyle vest because that looks too calculated. You really blah, 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 blah. Uh, I think they specifically said something to the effect of Patrick was memorizing a reading uh, the the latest GQ or or some uh, uh some book of like men's style to guide or guide to style S- something along those lines so <laughs> so you're right I don't think that was an accident I think I would not be the least bit surprised if Brady Snellis just took directly from something because I in this world they would memorize those things I read an interview with Brady Snellis and he said that that's where he got the really evil violence is that he copied it from some FBI like memoir of horrible, horrible crimes. I don't know about you guys, but again, exploring this, the movie, the book, um, one thing really stood out to me this time. It's, it's so easy to focus on the violent aspects because it's in your face. But if you take all the violence out of the book and the movie, he's still fucking creepy. I mean, I, I don't know yeah. anybody who he's obsesses nuts. over... Who, who obsesses over clothes and has a near panic attack because Paul Allen has a much better business card than him? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I've had anxiety attacks, but it's over shit like, oh, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. Not because this guy has a nicer car or a, a card than I do. <laughs> you know, it's just like you, you see people like that and you want to be just like, fucking get it together, man. I wonder what kind of upbringing, like what kind of backstory the author had in mind for, I mean, I know they, he says his father owns the company and stuff, but we really don't, really don't get any concept of why he's like this. Or is he just like the logical extension of yuppie dumb? Probably the, the latter of what you're saying, the yuppie dumb, um, I, I I don't know if Mike listened to the same exact version of uh, the audio as I did, but I, I listened to it off of Audible. And the very last chapter is actually an audio interview with Brady Snellis. He said that uh, murders notwithstanding, that's who he was during that period. He was that, that vain you know, person that wanted all the best and what have you. That wanted everyone to feel his pain. Sometimes I feel like I need to go back to this, but I I remember watching Lesson Zero – when it was out at theaters and which would have made me so 87, I would have been 15 years old. So maybe I was a little too young for it. It's, I was too young for it. I know for oh, sure. 
I'll, I'll be honest. I went into a little overkill and I watched because I'd never seen it. I, I did watch it recently and it's it's a nice time capsule, but I'd be interested to read the book because I can only imagine that uh, there's a lot that they couldn't get away with. And I mean, and they got away with a bit for the 80s. This is my impression of Lesson Zero, the movie. We're going to save Robert Downey Jr. He's doing a lot of drugs. Oh, look, at he's giving a guy a blowjob. Oh, look, at he's dead. Movie over. I just watched it, and you pretty much just summed it up. I think that's kind of what it's okay. about. Yeah. You know what's insulting to me is that movie wants you wants to earn that ending. It wants to be Midnight Cowboy. Oh, he's dead in the car. You're not fucking Midnight Cowboy. I'm sorry. Yeah, when he just kind of like slumps over, I'm just like, oh, thank God. Movie over? Can we go now? I, I will say this, though. Uh, credit where credit's due. Robert Downey Jr. did a wonderful job. Of course, he might have been method acting at the time. A- again, in the book, not the movie, but I have to imagine that uh, Patrick Bateman's obsession with Jamie Gertz comes from Less Than Zero, the movie. Guys, let me ask you what you two have been up to. Paula, can you tell me uh, what is keeping you busy with uh, Cinema Detroit these days? We're still the only seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. Uh, we're still serving up our mix of uh, mainstream, art house, true indie, and some classics. And uh, right now we are featuring uh, the horror film, It Comes at Night, which is um, about these people in the future, dystopia type of situation. They don't leave their house after dark. And this other family comes along and things start to happen that are very scary. And then I'm showing a film called Whiskey Galore, which is about these people who live on an island off the coast of Scotland during World War II, and they're out of whiskey. It's a horrible plight for them until a cargo ship runs aground just offshore, and the cargo is whiskey. However, there is a home guard officer played by Eddie Izzard, who wants to confiscate all the whiskey. So it's a battle of wits between the Islanders and Eddie Izzard. It's just very funny. It's actually a remake of an Ealing comedy, Ealing studio comedy. That's what's going on this week for our future features and showtimes. As always, cinemadetroit.com. And how about you, David? What's keeping you busy these days? Well, not too much. Um, you can catch me once in a while on the Binge Watchers podcast. I'm uh, like the fifth Beatle. I'm kind of like the third Binge Watcher. I'm there from time to time. You can find that on all your usual iTunes, Podcast Addict, uh, Stitcher. Uh, you can find me at the normal places, Facebook. Just find David Rogers, R-O-D-G-E-R-S. Once you find a picture of an assassinated Abraham Lincoln, you found me. Twitter at Dangerous Dave Zero Two. There's a story behind that, and um, we're hoping uh, me and a group of friends are hoping this summer to shoot a short film called Jupiter Lift. Um, I just got a script sent to me, so I'm hopefully going to be reading that tonight. And uh, so keep an ear out for that. Ooh, right on. Right, cool. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to our Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
can Mary fry some fish Mama I'm as hungry as can be Oh Lordy how I wish Mama You could keep the baby quiet Cause my head's killing me I seen my ex last night Mama At a dance at Miller's store She was with that Jackie White Mama I killed them both And they're buried Under Jenkins Sycamore Don't you think I'm psycho, Mama You can pour me a cup If you think I'm psycho, Mama Better let them lock me up Don't hand the dog to me, Mama I might squeeze him too tight And I'm as nervous as can be, Mama But let me tell you about last night I woke up in Johnny's room, Mama Standing right by his bed With my hands near his throat, Mama Wishing both of us was dead You think I'm psycho, don't you, Mama? I just killed Johnny's pup You think I'm psycho, don't you, Mama? You better let him lock me up You know the little girl next door, Mama I think her name is Betty Clark Oh, don't tell me that she's dead, Mama. Why, I just seen her in the park. She was sitting on a bench, Mama, thinking up a game to play. Seems I was holding a wrench, Mama, then my mind walked away. You think I'm psycho, don't you, Mama? Didn't mean to break your cup. You think I'm psycho, don't you, Mama? Mama, Mama, why don't you get up? Say something to me, Mama. Mama, why don't you get up? You like Huey Lewis in the news? Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost. He's been compared to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. In 87, Huey released this. 
four, their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics, but they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends, it's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul!
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.